You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 149. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. And leave us a review if you can. And uh, yeah, it'd be great. We'd appreciate it. Uh, and go to the website, codingblocks.net. We have uh, all sorts of stuff, including show notes, examples, discussion, events, and more. And uh, we have feedback, questions, and rants that you can send to comments at codingblocks.net. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm the guy who forgot to mute his cell phone. I'm Alan Underwood. I didn't say anything about it, Joe Zach. <laughs> I was going to, though. I so badly wanted to like make a, a reference to like Amateur Alan or, hey, you can reach us on Alan's cell phone apparently during the show. <laughs> Jeez. It's and good. It's I'm the minute. harsh critic, Michael Outlaw. Uh. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into the performance of your entire Higher containerized environment. All right, uh, a little bit of news to uh, start with. And uh, first, you know, we like to say thank you for all the reviews. We really appreciate it this time. Big thanks go to uh, Lars and Kiel OXACE, which is awesome. Uh, I think that's a memory address because it's all hex. Yeah, that's right. It's either <laughs> the Ace and Deadbeat for the only ones I know. Uh, T Betcha 33, a Shiny Cloud times two. Now, I got to give a special shout out to uh, the Shrike for two reasons. Uh, one, I know this is a reference to one of my favorite all time horror slash sci fi uh, novels, Hyperion. And I saw this uh, this person on Twitter recently. I knew instantly what their name and uh, picture was a reference to. So that made me really happy to see. And uh, so thank you for the review. Also, thank you for the recommendation on the book I'm listening to right now on Audible called Necroscope, which has been really cool. And I had totally not heard about it. And uh, it's also got like a kind of like a funny horror thing going on, which I, I very much approve of. So thank you. Hey, I want to clarify there <clears throat> that uh, the shiny cloud times two, it wasn't shiny cloud times two. It was just shiny cloud, but we got two reviews from oh, hey. shiny cloud, both in iTunes. I didn't understand how that happened, but um uh, yeah, so maybe they clicked submit twice and iTunes accepted it, or I don't know if they like. It, it wasn't clear to me in, um, you know, the way that we get to see the aggregated list of uh, reviews, like if it was le- legitimate that they submitted it to like in multiple countries, for example. Although it said the same country, Australia, for both of them. But either way, I wanted to like give credit, like, hey, we got both of them. Thank you. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. All right, and uh, I'll just keep blabbing. Uh, so <laughs> I am going to be blabbing at uh, – I'm going to be doing an excellent presentation at the San Diego Elastic Meetup on uh, January 19th, 2021. Uh, it's going to be really cool talking about uh, doing a development flow. And I'm going to be talking about some of the tools that we're going to be talking about in this episode too, um, Scaffold. And uh, we'll talk about Scaffold more, sure. Like uh, We might all have this on the list. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, that's going to be a good talk, and you should sign up for it totally free. And I mean, streaming. You're, you're kind of hinting at like what the topic is. Yeah. So Yo, yeah. I guess we haven't said it, right? Yeah. No, no, yeah. no, don't. don't say it. Don't say no. it now. <laughs> no. All right. You have to, you have to wait. Uh, all right. Uh, also <laughs> January 21th to the 24th, we have the game jam coming up. Uh, jam, first jam, 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 you wary. 
That's right. Uh, we've narrowed down the list of potential themes to 12 uh, at the time of this recording, and it's going to be getting narrowed all the way down to one by the 21st. Uh, so it's really exciting. Also, free, awesome, learn something really great. You should go sign up right now and uh, make a game because what's better than that? Hey, and and we actually have a decent number of signups, so you won't be alone. Like, come join us, right? Like, we'd love to get it up over 100 people that are wanting to do this. So I believe the three of us are actually taking time off work to do this. So, you know, come have some fun. It, yep. Maybe we make something cool. Who knows? Maybe not, but it'll be worth a shot. Or maybe yep. we get authentication to work for a babillion concurrent users. That's yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I, this this next bit of news, I'm not going to go too deep on it. I'm just going to say the six key, and and I'm I'm going to leave it like that because our survey oh. is going to dive into this a little bit deeper. But I I want to bring it up here because I do have a slew of keyboard reviews that are coming out here pretty soon. So I'm actually working on doing the reviews. And for those that are not a member of our YouTube channel, you can go to youtube.com slash coding blocks and, you know, sign up for it there, you know, just subscribe to it or whatever. But the, the first three that I have on tap, two of them I've basically used for a decent amount of time and I'm ready to do one is the Kinesis Advantage 2, which is nutso in its design. The other one that I've got that was sent to me from Zergotech. Uh, that I've been messing with for the past few weeks. And then the next one is the one that Michael has been waiting on somewhat patiently on the Moonlander. So I've got three pretty incredible keyboards that I'm going to be doing reviews on. So, you know, go, go subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're at all interested in that kind of stuff. And then we'll get back to the six key in a little while. Yeah. You, you gave the wrong URL though. The, the more uh, popular way of getting to our YouTube channel would be to go to codingblocks.net slash YouTube. That you can is flip flop them. Either one you that's want. The, they both that's work. the more popular way. Yeah. Yes, they both work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, who uh, wants to give the topic introduction? Uh, that, that'll be Jay Z. I think. No, wait. Did I come up with it? I came up. Yeah, that's your one. idea. Yeah. All right. So, we haven't done this in a while. Like we used to do this every year, kind of like we do our shopping spree, right? Like it, we always do our shopping spree in November and we used to do a, Hey, what are the tools that we use this year that we really like or love or whatever? Right. And the thing is we typically throw these in our tips of the week or whatever. And I thought that it would just be nice to kind of have an episode that was dedicated to, Hey, with the stuff that we've done this year, what are the tools that stood out to us? doesn't matter if it's been a part of a previous tip or not just, Hey, let's, let's talk about the things that we really love to use and why we like to use them. So that's what this episode is, right? And and we didn't, it, at least for the rules of this one, it wasn't like, hey, each of us picked three and, you know, hopefully there's not overlap because usually, especially Mike likes to hide his from us. So <laughs> he, he, he won't tell us what they are. So kind of what the whole thing of this one is, if one of us really likes a tool and, you know, it was on our list too, then we'll jump in and be like, yes, that, you know, I plus one that or whatever. So that's kind of the vein of this, and you know, we'll just see how it gets, how we get through this one. Hey, just real quick, when do you think the last time we did this was? I'm going to go 2017. 2017. I'm going to say 2013. 2013. 2013 is when we started. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, that tradition we had. Give us a I minute. Didn't go over. I didn't go over. <laughs> He's good at that. He is. You definitely did not. No. uh, 2015. 
Episode oh, 37 was the oh, last time we, we did the favorite tools. Okay, so this is good. I think it, I, I think the reason we stopped doing them, and you guys could tell me, but it was because sometimes it's like, well, you kind of use the same tools all the time, right? And it's not like you have a bunch of brand new tools. But I, I don't know. I figured over, like I just thought it was a couple of years. You know, you pick up one or two over a couple of years, and I think it's worth trying to talk about these. I still like all mine. I stand by it. <laughs> from years from 2015? Well, it's funny to see Notepad Plus Plus and Sublime are not around here. <laughs> so oh, are they? See, that's yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. Things have Things changed. Change. Like, when's the last time you opened up Sublime for real? Oh gosh, yeah. And Notepad Plus Plus. Has any one of us? Do we even install it anymore? Am I the only one that still uses Sublime? Okay, dude, I I, I can't think. <clears throat> do of, you? I like it. It's just I like code better. Visual Studio Code has replaced almost every text editor I've ever used. Yeah, I, I yeah. I still use it, not heavily, but it's more like a a cache of like notes. Like I can just like, because I I mean Visual Studio Code does the same thing where you can like right. open it and like create a file without actually saving it, and it'll cache it somewhere, you yep. know. But Sublime is kind of like my note taker still. Okay, okay. So it's your stickies. It's your homemade stickies. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's funny. We jumped right into the episode without actually even starting the episode. So, <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll start the episode in three, what? two, ah, uh, what? So this was on my list. We won't start the episode. VS Code was on my list. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, we yeah. totally hijacked one of his things, which is fine. Yeah. Um, so, totally so, fine. so, Joe, you go ahead and start us off with the one that you have at the top of your list because I assume this is the very first one for a reason. Oh, uh, no, not really. Um, oh, I was wrong. All right. So, yeah, I was just getting food and thinking about what my tools were going to be inside. Like I made an acronym <laughs> and K it started with K. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so K nines I mentioned before, uh, if you are working with Kubernetes, you owe it to yourself to check it out. It's a command line tool. So, uh, it, it is a tool that runs on the command line. It is also a user interface. So, uh, it's kind of like this weird hybrid between like, a a traditional command line tool where you type command, 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 like kubectl, and a traditional, you know, traditional kind of UI or IDE that lets you kind of browse. Uh, so it's a uh, terminal it's a UI. Bit like Vim. Say what? It's a terminal UI is what it's you're a terminal trying to say. UI. Yep. And so you can install it on Linux. So if you've got a, you know, uh, a server that you shell into to get to your Kubernetes environments or whatever, it works fine there. But uh, the things that I really like about it are that it's really great with multi-cluster and multi-name spaces. If you do a lot of hopping around like I do, it makes it super fast, and it also does a lot of caching in the background. So it's constantly pulling things like pods and services and uh, also also uh, custom resources, all pulling in the background. So when you swap between environments, it's lightning fast, and it's really easy to filter. And once you get the hang of how to pop around, it's just really great. It's got really nice tools built in like uh, X-ray, pop-by, and pulses for like linting, a little bit of monitoring. And uh, I just love it. Hey, and, and I'll pile on here. So this is a plus one for me because this is one of the ones like, in all honesty, Joe, how much time did you spend with me on this? Like maybe five minutes? Uh, oh, yeah. On, on canines? Yep. Yeah. Showing me like he was like, yo, dude, because I was in there typing in the you know, cube cuddle, do this, do whatever. Right. And in the time that I'm doing this, I think he was over there breaking a sweat. And he's like, dude, have you tried canines? And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. 
So he took like five minutes and just did a blast go through of it. And I was sold immediately. And I know that we've talked about this on a previous episode and and why Mike doesn't necessarily love it, but I will say for 90% of what I want to do, canines is, is all I need. And it's so good. And I think the reason why I like it so much is because it is a terminal UI, it's just keystrokes. You know, hey, you want to go to this one? You hit this key. You want to go to a shell? You hit S. You don't have to go right-click on something. You don't have to click on anything. You just navigate with your arrows and hit some keys on the keyboard. And you can do, like I said, 90% of what you want pretty easily within a few keystrokes. And, And to me, that's just a huge time saver. I feel like I could win a race against the fastest typist if they're only doing cube cuddle and I'm doing canines and we just have like someone like shouting commands, like go check out this pause, go, go look up the logs. Now scale this up, scale this down. Like I will win hands down. And this is the only race in my life that I will, um, I'm ever capable of winning. And and you want to know the part. There is one specific thing that seals the deal for me. And it's the fact that you can do a Vim type search on it. You just hit the, the forward slash and you search and it narrows down all the pods or the names, so whatever it is that you're currently looking at. If you want to filter it down, it's so easy to do. Even, even with cube cuddle auto, um, auto complete type stuff, it still doesn't even come close to as good as what this is with its filtering. It's and so that, awesome. that's what does it. That's what does it for me. Although, what you have on line 51 there in our notes is the one is the one thorn in its side. Yep. You can't script it. So uh, anything that you want to do, uh, you, I mean, you can uh, run the app and like have it automatically go to a different namespace or context, or you can kind of like pass some flags to get to basic areas, but you can't do things like set up a script that will scale this pod up, change this config map scale. You know, do, you can't like script commands like you can with keep cuddle. Though I will say, I think a lot of people kind of have this conception that like kube cuddle is Kubernetes somehow. Mm. And it's not, it communicates with the, the Kubernetes API, right. just like you could with like a, you know, a, a API or a, you know, a rest interface or, or whatever. There's multiple different ways to communicate with the Kubernetes API and kubectl is one of those ways, but it's not like some like auto built in whatever. So like canines isn't some like weird abstraction layer. It just talks to Kubernetes API, just like kubectl does. With probably the most popular use cases in mind. Right. And that's where, Cube cuddle is, you know, you need to do anything. You can go to it, right? Canines is, hey, what are you doing most of the time? And yeah, and- you know, there's there's only one thing I don't know how to do in canines. I haven't figured out how to, and that's basically filtered by label. Uh, and now there's things, yeah, you know, I guess you're right. Like there's things that you can do. Like um, you can kind of say like, hey, get all the pods with this label, and then only output the name. And that's useful for like uh, scripting and whatnot. And you can't do that in in KNIs. You would basically just go describe it. You can go view it, but it's just not useful for you can't pipe it to something. Right. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of this. Outlaw Outlaws over there kind of like, eh. <laughs> I'll race you. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, I, I don't want to bash on it, uh, you know, any more than I have in the past, which I felt like I've, you know, probably already too much because I don't mean to. Like, it, it is, it is, uh, it is a cool tool. I, I do. Uh, I, I, I like it. Not as much as, as you guys. Right. Like I, my, my thing is, is consistent. Uh, even with like, you know, 
going far back, like we've had conversations related to other tools, like even to like get tools. And it was like, no, I would rather know the underlying tools from the command line. And that way, no matter what system I go into, uh, I don't have to have some dependency of like, Oh, Hey, let me install this other thing. Right. And you know, any 99% of the Kubernetes environments, you're going to have a kube cuddle <laughs> command more so than canines. Right. Yep. So I'd rather, I'd rather be, uh, you know, Life is short and, you know, brain, brain cells are limited. So if I'm going to, uh, you know, focus on mastering one command line tool, I'd rather just pick the one that's available on every platform that, yep. that yeah. So I pick hoop cuddle. Well, I'll, so I'll tell you, so I joined the canine Slack today just cause I like it that much. <laughs> And I wanted to stay up on what they're doing. I thought it might be fun to try and contribute. They're actually in 2021, they're going to be releasing uh, K9's Alpha, uh, which is just a kind of a clever name for basically a, a subscription uh, model. So you'll be able to pay like 10 bucks a month or whatever and uh, get a pro version. And then the, the current version that's out there now, it's going to stay free, open source, whatever. So I consider it basically done as is like they'll, you know, be bug fixes or whatever, I'm sure. But um, there's going to be a, like a pro version that's branching off. I'm on board, man. I'm like, I'm like getting ready to like email the guy my credit card, like give it to me right now. <laughs> Here's a picture of the front and back of my credit card. Just give me the things. That's like, right. I'll go ahead and pay you for the months I've been using it, and also the months <laughs> I wish I had it. Like, just let me give you some money. <laughs> uh, all right. So, what you got next? Oh, you going one by one? Are we doing? Uh, uh I mean, I don't know. Uh, what outlaw? You got one? Because I know yours aren't on here. Uh, no, they are. Um, I, I just assumed that we were going <clears> to <throat> go in like some kind of an order. Uh, so, so fine. Uh, here's where, here's, you know, one of the things that we've talked about before that I, I liked about, uh, canines and that was that it opened my eyes to Popeye hmm. and, you know, cause it does like, like, um, Joe said, canines does make, you know, expose some things and makes it you know, really easy. Like you mentioned x-ray impulses as well, but, uh, Popeye just sounds like, you know, such a, uh, a great tool that we should use all the time, right? Like it just quickly and easily identify, you know, any, uh, like issues or, or what may become like future issues in your Kubernetes cluster. Right. And, you know, it'll detect misconfigurations and help to ensure that you're sticking with best practices. And, you know, what's not to like about that? Like all of the YAML required to set up your cluster is, I mean, you, you can try to do all your best, but like Popeye just gives you such a great visual way of knowing like it's basically like a linter for your, your, your Kubernetes cluster. That's uh, one thing I, I've been confused about with Popeye is that uh, canines kind of blurs the line between Popeye and X-Ray and it kind of cross links between them. I don't know where one begins and the other ends. I don't know if one's built on top of the other, but uh, you can go into Popeye's drill into X-Ray and I think you can go from X-Ray back out to Popeye. So I don't know who actually gathers the data or if they're using some common. I haven't even seen X-Ray like um, maybe I'm not, Thing what you're talking about, but like if you click on that link that I have there uh, for Popeye, it's PopeyeCLI.io, and uh, you can scroll down towards the bottom of that that page, 
and they show you screenshots, examples. And this is in line with the things that I've seen through canines. Okay. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the visualizations that they're showing. Except except the, the difference is, is that here in the Popeye's CLI uh, screenshots that they're showing, it's it's showing you everything all at one time. So like cluster-wide node, uh, pods, services, et cetera, right? Whereas in canines, like if you're drilled into just the pods, then you're seeing just the pods. Yeah. You know, you're seeing Popeye's – uh, inspection of the pods that, you know, oh, this is the seeing- first time I've actually seen the UI. It is really nice. It's, it's again, it's a terminal UI and, and they did a really nice job on it. Yep. Uh, well, Popeye, there you go. Uh, I don't know. Would you call that a terminal UI? I mean, that's just the C the CLI output of it. All right? through the CLI. Yeah. Oh yeah. It may not be the UI. It's the CLI. It's all done in your command line. Um, but, it all looks really nice. Now, I mean, my my experience with Popeye has all been through canines. So, okay, you know, and in canines, you could like drill into a specific part. So, you know, maybe maybe the Popeye CLI by itself is more uh, terminal UI ish. Cool. I don't know. Yeah, I've always just done it through uh, canines. But real quick, who can do the best Popeye impersonation? <laughs> Not me. Hey, <laughs> Oh, outlaw. <laughs> outlaw wins. I didn't know we were going to do it at the same time, though. That just ruined right, You got to do it again. No. <laughs> now that you're going to make a big deal about it and embarrass me. No. No. Uh, just kidding. All right. Well, hopefully. Maybe I'll do it. Ah, okay, okay, okay. No, that was horrible. Yeah. No. No, you win. No. That wasn't terrible. No, that was pretty good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So I guess right, show's the show's over. Forget it. Right, right. Stop. We're done. So uh, I guess on to my first one, which is really kind of cheating because it's really like all the JetBrains tools. Like they're just so good. And if you're not a member of our newsletter, we monthly give them away. And I'm sure the people that already have JetBrains is like, hey, quit sending me the emails on JetBrains. But whatever. <laughs> like here's the thing. Like if you join the newsletter, we truly just give away stuff on it. More or less, that's basically all we've ever done. Um, but – in all honesty, I've been using a lot of JetBrains tools this past year, right? IntelliJ for Java and Kotlin, PyCharm for my Python because I'm now a Python mastermind. Uh, DataGrip is a is a really good cross um, database tool. Like it could support so many different databases, relational, object oriented, whatever, right? And cross platform. Hey, cross-platform, you can run it on Windows, Mac, Linux, whatever, right? Like it's, and that's true of all of the IntelliJ tools because they're all written in Java, right? So basically, if you have a Java runtime in whatever OS you're working in, you can run these tools. And yeah. I mean, I, I even at some point I was doing Ruby, I think earlier uh, in the year. So Ruby mine, I think is one of theirs as well. Just while coming from a Visual Studio background, like the the key bindings and stuff really mess with your head. But once you get past that and you learn their environments and all that, they are so good. Like I, I'd mentioned in the past, one of the things I loved about PyCharm is I hate installing, you know, a version of Python in my OS because it ultimately conflicts with another version that something else needs. Like it's the same garbage that we deal with all the time as developers. So I could just put it in a Docker container. 
And PyCharm is smart enough to say, oh, you want, oh, just we'll hook up to whatever Docker container or image that you have on your system and you can use that as your development environment. And so, like, in all honesty, basically, if IntelliJ makes a tool to develop in. You mean JetBrains. Or JetBrains, I said IntelliJ. If JetBrains makes a tool to develop in, it's probably worth a hundred bucks. Like, I mean, most of their tools are in that ballpark. I think IntelliJ Pro Edition is a little bit more expensive. I want to say it's 200 250 something like that. But if you find yourself in the world where you're going to need two or three of these things, like I have recently, just buy their all-in license, which is, I don't remember. I, I think, Outlaw, you might know the price of that thing. $650. Oh, yeah, for business. Uh, for organizations, yes. Sorry. Yeah, for, for personal, I think it's like 450 250 yeah. For individual, that's oh, it? for all, for for the if you do the yearly billing for the all products pack, it's two hundred fifty dollars. And uh, and I was going to say wow. too, like you were saying, a hundred dollars that that's true for individuals. Then like you know they might be in that you know a lot of their products might be in that hundred dollar range, but not for organization. You know, not for yeah, they bump it up a little yes. bit. But oh. it, it, go ahead. I was gonna say data grip is really great for too, for connecting any database, SQL Server, um, yeah. or Mongo, or Postgres, or whatever. Co- coincidentally, I had data grip down on uh, my list of favorite tools, and my I mean my reasons for it was like it doesn't matter what your database is, data data grip can query it, you can connect to it. But <clears throat> also, one of my favorite things about it, and this is gonna this is a silly stupid thing about it, but um, the it has syntax formatting like built into it. Right. Right. So you could just select it all, format it, and then boom. And it, and then that way, the thing that I love about it is just like it allows for consistency among all of your SQL within, you know, through all of your team if everybody's using that. Now, you might not like the formatting decisions that um, JetBrains has made in it, but I believe you can customize that. If I recall, I you so. can go in mm-hmm. and you can set your own uh, formatting um, uh, styles. Yeah, yeah, templates, but um, yeah, I, I just use the the built in one. But I, I just love the fact that you can have that kind of consistency there. Yeah, and you know another thing I love about it, and this is also just a stupid little thing, but you know how like in uh, SQL Server man- or SQL Server Management Studio, like if you want the output of of a grid, you have a few different ways you could do it. You can either highlight the whole thing, Control C, and then plop it in somewhere, or you can have it save it to a particular file type or whatever. Well, in in Data Grip, they give you all kinds of options right there on top of the grid. You can say export it to CSV, to HTML, to whatever, right? So if you're trying to present that data to somebody else and, and you just want them to be able to pop it up in a browser, you can say, hey, export it to HTML and they can see it. So there's just there's just a ton of little features that are buried all in the app that are amazing. And we've recommended this tool to several people just personally in Slack or whatever, and I don't think I've ever had anybody come back and say anything other than, dude, this is awesome, right? Like, thank you for recommending this because the amount of time you'll spend trying to find a free alternative to it for whatever database system you're working on, typically will you would have been way better off just spending the extra money on it, going and getting it and being productive. So my only one complaint though, that I, I wish that if somebody from JetBrains is listening is, you know how like, if you compare it to uh, SQL Management Studio, 
and you execute multiple queries, like all your results are just right there and you can just scroll that single pane to see all right. of them. And in JetBrains, it's not like that. Like they create multiple tabs, right? Yeah. And it, it's just kind of a hassle because it's like, oh man, I want to see these two. I, I ran these two queries at the same time because I want to see the data at the same time. And now I can't because they're in different tabs. And yeah, both data sets are available, but not at the same time. I can't right. see them at the same time. And that was the whole reason why I ran them at the same time. Well, you probably put in a request. <clears throat> hey, you want to hear all the engines that it supports? Yes. Data grip supports. All right. Postgres, SQL, MySQL, Oracle database, SQL server, Azure, Amazon, Redshift, SQLite, DB2, H2, Sybase. Uh, this one I've never, I don't think I've heard of. Exasol. Is that, am I saying that one right? Exasol. E-X-A-S-O-L is how it's spelled. Apache Derby, MariaDB, HyperSQL, Snowflake, Cassandra, ClickHouse, Greenplum, Apache Hive, Vertica, and MongoDB. That's awesome. I mean... Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so JetBrains, so DataGrip has to make the list. <laughs> There's yeah. just no way it can't. It does so much. It, it, One it, tool. It, it, that was the part that was so hard for me is I started looking and I was like, man, JetBrains really just makes amazing tools all the way across the board. <laughs> like I've heard of people using, and I've never used it, but Rider for C Sharp. Oh yeah. There are lots of people that work on Macs that love writing C sharp code. Everybody who's ever written C sharp code loves C sharp code. Oh yeah. What's not uh, to love? So, you know, if you're going to change over to Mac OS, you still want to write that same beautiful code. Like there are a lot of people that swear by writer. They're like, yeah, I'm just, I don't want to use anything else. So, so yeah, man, I'm all on board on the, on the jet brains train here. And I shared this tip too, that I, I love about, um, for data grip and, uh, I'm like pretty confident that you can do this in the other, uh, you know, like ID idea based, um, editor. So like IntelliJ or PyCharm or whatever. Um, but it's super helpful to, I think in data grip or super applicable in data grip, which is like you can color code, uh, settings. So, so basically you can like select a server and, and color code it so you could have like all your production ones, assuming you even have access to your production database servers, which we should have a talk after this Inside data podcast grip, if right. you do. Um, but you could like color code those to be red and then like local development boxes, you could color code to be green. And then whenever you open a query console to one of those, the tab will match that color so that you could instantly tell, you know, color code like, oh yeah, be careful on this tab because this one's red. Uh, two other things I got to mention about uh, about JetBrains uh, and, and DellJ. So, um, or JetBrains specifically. So, one thing uh, Swix, uh, our old buddy Swix, asked on Twitter recently is basically like, "Hey, you know, I got a license of uh, of WebStorm. I'm trying to understand like why I would use this instead of VS Code. You know, because I already know and love VS Code." And uh, my response was that uh, VS Code is awesome. Like I just recommended it. Like I love VS Code. It's really great uh, if you're going to get started with any language. You're going to get VS Code, and you're going to go and you're going to find the plugins. You're going to install them. You're going to configure them. You're going to set up how you want. You're going to set up your IDE how you want. You're going to set up terminals over here and get the windows and panes and stuff that makes sense for you to work in. So uh, in short, VS Code uh, is cool, and you set up your plugins, and it's great. Uh, and JetBrains products are great, and <laughs> If you want to install some other plugins or go looking for them, fine. 
you can, but everything is is there for you, especially in Java. If you aren't using IntelliJ with with Java, I just don't understand why you would do that to yourself because uh, it's just so so nice and so pleasant. Because you love Eclipse. What's not to love about Eclipse? <laughs> Sorry, Eclipse. You know what though? I think for me, I maybe this will help clarify it for other people. Like why use why use something like you know WebStorm versus Visual Studio Code or or DataGrip versus Visual Studio Code. If if you've ever used tools, right? Like um, a pair of vice scripts, you could use those for so many things, but they're not the ideal tool, right? Like if you had a ratchet and 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 some some sockets, like that's going to work much better on a bolt than what a pair of vice scripts will. They'll get the job done, and that's how Visual Studio Code feels to me. Visual Studio Code has been built as such a generic tool, text editor slash IDE sort of that you can cram a lot of features into it, but it doesn't feel purpose built for any particular thing. Right. So like you go into data grip and you have your database explorer on the left, and then you can drill into tables and all that kind of stuff. Visual studio code, even if you were to get a database, like there's a SQL server plugin for it and it is just not well integrated. Like you have to know certain keystrokes to connect to a server and you have to know certain things to do. Like it's just not set up for the purpose of, Hey, this is going to be your database tool. Right. And that's, it's kind of the jack of all trades, master of some. Like if you're a JavaScript developer, it's probably really good for it. Uh, there are some other things that it's really good for, but you get into something like WebStorm and they have things built specifically tailored towards making your life easier as a web developer. And I think that's really, that's the big difference, right? At least to me is, yeah, you can do the job of both, but one of them just feels right. You know, it, it is made to make your life easy for this particular path. Oh yeah. I mean, you can get VS code. You can in- install a plugin for Mongo. You can install a plugin for Postgres and you can install a plugin for SQL server. They're all going to be way different. The shortcuts that you use, if they even set up shortcuts for those plugins, cause they hardly ever do are going to be way different. It, it's just not consistent. And, uh, you know, you, you've got the Docker plugin, but it's just with, uh, IntelliJ, it's just all right there. It's all laid out exactly how you kind of want it. And it just makes sense. And it's nice to have, uh, a consistent experience for you across your tools and plugins and also with your teammates. So if you go look at someone else's IntelliJ, you know, they have the same functionality with Docker or with Mongo, you know how to use their setup too. So if you're a screen sharing or something, it's easy to be able to, to do that. Whereas if, you know, Everyone's using different plugins for how they like their braces or the code or how they like to run their terminals or whatever. And this person's using Z shell. This other person's using uh, a standalone terminal. This person's using the terminal built into VS code. It's just, uh, it's just inconsistent and makes things a little bit harder. Yeah. Oh, and there was one, one thing I had to mention, um, to the, uh, the JetBrains Academy. Uh, that's not really the thing. I forget what it is, what it's actually called, but, um, they have like, a this ability to kind of set up like, um, almost like course projects or test projects where you can, uh, geez, I'm going to have to, I'm yeah, our buddy Ryan actually did one. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, it's JetBrains Academy, right? So Academy is, uh, built on it. Um, but there's something else, uh, geez, it's basically, it's like a platform that you can use to kind of create projects. So if, like, for example, if you want to teach someone about like Apache beam is what we were looking at. Like you want to teach someone Apache beam, which is like, a you know, an Apache open source project that's like complicated and kind of hard to start to get into. Well, there's a plugin where you can basically create these kind of courses 
And so you give someone like a project and they're able to, in the IDE, go work through that project, create code, run it. It's going to run some tests to tell them if they're correct before they move on to like the next module. And so uh, you can find that JetBrains has uh, a whole bunch of these courses available. And then JetBrains Academy takes it a whole nother level. JetBrains Academy actually is a pay service where they you can uh, like learn Python and learn Java or Kotlin uh, in uh, the IDE. And it's the same kind of thing where it's like, hey, here's a project like um, Tic-Tac-Toe. Go do Tic-Tac-Toe. And they'll walk you through creating Tic-Tac-Toe in a really uh, granular and modular way. And so the first part would be like, okay, hey, create the board. And then you'll actually have a little description in your IDE and you'll have you know some code. So you'll do the code. And once it passes all the tests – then you can go on to like the next session. So you'll build up these projects and it's a great way of like learning by doing that. I don't think you can do outside of a, an IDE really or it's, it's hard to do outside of an IDE. Is it called edgy tools? That sounds like it. Maybe. Yeah. To set it, it up. I think it is. If I remember right, it's been a while. Yeah. Cause I did the step courses. Yep. Yeah, it is. That is it. And uh, edgy tools. So the JetBrains kind of makes, uh, makes a lot of use out of edgy tools, but you can also just make your own courses. Very cool. And find other people's courses that they make on uh, the marketplace, which is which are free. At least I'll, I'll only seen free ones. Maybe they're pay ones too. I don't know. Well, yeah, I could talk about Jermaine's uh, a lot. And I do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right? All right. So it's your turn for the next one there. Oh, me? Yeah, you. Okay. Uh, something else uh, that I love to talk about is Scaffold. In fact, I'm doing a talk about it. And this is the thing I alluded to at the beginning of the show. Uh, on the 19th talking about scaffold because scaffold to me delivers on the promise uh, and the bait and switch that uh, Docker compose gave me because the thing I liked about Docker compose is that it gave you a one liner you could use to spin up an architecture, which is so powerful for complicated environments. Cause you could say, run this thing. It's going to go out, download and set up and run everything you need. You can make changes and like kind of rerun it. But the problem is that you couldn't then go take it and deploy it. It was like, okay, you've got this great Docker Compose that's fantastic for dev experience, uh, but then you got to throw it away and then figure out how to deploy it with Kubernetes or something else. It was like totally detached. Well, Scaffold says, hey, tell you what, set up a file just like you did with Docker Compose. You'll run a one-liner. It'll spin up your development environment. Any changes you make will automatically kick off uh, a rebuild of those images. We'll set a port forwarding to you, which is important for Kubernetes if you're working locally with Kubernetes. And what it means practically is that you can develop locally with Kubernetes in a very easy one-liner type of way. And then you can take that and use it to build and use it to deploy. And so you've got a single platform that will take you from a great developer experience all the way to production with no major shifts and paradigms along the way. I love it. And it's free open source. Great tool from Google. I plus one this one. Oh yeah. Uh, I forgot profiles too. So if you want to have modular, uh, like an example I like to give a, or be given in the talk here is like, um, let's say you're setting up an elastic search environment and uh, sometimes you want to work with data set a, and so you want to load data set a. And so you can set up a profile and say, this is my uh, data set a profile. And I'm going to set up a, a, something that will go ahead and start loading data, start streaming data. And sometimes I don't want any data. Maybe I don't care about the data, or maybe I want to spin up uh, Mongo this time. Sometimes maybe I don't, or maybe I only want to spin up various pieces of my architecture. I can set up different profiles that either add or remove or modify pieces of my architecture so it can save me resources, which is really slick. So I knew that uh, 
Jay Z was going to say scaffold, or I, or one of you was going to say scaffold. I knew scaffold would come up because it is awesome. Um, and and we've talked about it in the past. We've recommended it in the past, and the three of us stand by all of that. Um. However, I did want to include an alternative, which is customize with a K, and it's built in to like Kube Cuddle. You can use Kube Cuddle to to create uh, your customized environments. And the reason why I included it, because I was, I was a little unclear, I was, or a little, um, uh, I don't know, not, not sure about, I, I was, I wasn't sure if I wanted to include it or not, but since I knew somebody was going to bring up scaffold, I thought, well, we should, we should bring up customize as an alternative. And, uh, there's a, you know, one of the, the, streams that Jay-Z and I did recently, um, you know, it was brought up, it was mentioned to us like, Hey, you should try customize. And then Jay-Z and I will go off in this wild tangent for the next two hours, uh, learning all about customize. And I think Zach Brady. Yeah, thanks. And, uh, so I'll include a link to that, um, uh, to that, to that stream. You can watch it on YouTube, but, uh, the coolest thing though, that I really liked about it though, and and this is where it's you know the benefit of it versus scaffold comes in is that with customize it is bonkers simple to see what's the difference between one environment to the next right so like joe mentioned the profiles that you can create in in scaffold but you know you kind of have to like take a minute to be like okay wait a minute uh what's in the default Okay. And then if I use this one, what else am I going to add or remove to it? Okay. Well, wait, am I, I'm adding that. That wasn't already in the base profile. Like you gotta, like, it takes you a minute to reason about it, right? Totally possible, you know, but that single scaffold file can get a little unwieldy, right? And with customize, uh, the thing that I absolutely loved about it were the customizations that you make with it. Uh, and that, and that's what, you know, they're called, which would make sense. Um, you would have a customizations.yaml file and it's only describing the deltas and it literally points back to here's the base profile to use. You use this for the base and here's the deltas that I want to change on top of that. And it makes it so ridiculously easy and simple to see like what's different about this one. And that's the thing that I loved about it. And so I felt that it needed a mention in here. And um, now, you know, here, here's the one, the one side though, cause I will play devil's advocate to my own, my own pick. And that is that um, technically in your, in your Kubernetes environment, which you could do all of the customizations or let me say this differently. All of the deltas that you're setting up uh, that, that, Customize allows you to do, you could technically do with different values files for your Helm charts. If, you know, assuming you're using Helm, right? You could have like a, a values.prod.yaml, a values.local.yaml, right? Like wh- however you want to set yours up, right? You, you could technically do that, but I still think that there's some, like if you've never seen it, there's something to be said for the way customize sets it up that I still think is a little bit more elegant in terms of being able to see the differences from one environment or, or quote profile to another that, you know, compared to scaffold or other. 
Thoughts? I haven't spent any time in this at all, but it's something I will definitely look into. Yeah, it's really good. And I think, like you said, it's it's really great for like if you have like a, a dev and a stage and a prod environment, and you want to know like, exactly what's you know what it's like between them. Like, it's it's hard to see in Helm because it you can kind of whine and it's so flexible that it just it turns to spaghetti. So there's something really nice about just having those like firm lines. Yeah. Cool. All right. And that's it for me for Kubernetes, by the way. So I'm not going to say Kubernetes for the rest of the podcast. I mean, you it's lie. funny. I mean, you you will notice a theme with a lot of the things that the three of us use. A lot of it revolves around containers, right? Or containerization of applications because we've not only because we've loved it for the past, because I think Outlaw, you said that our first episode on Docker was episode 80 or something. Like uh, we, almost, did a, we did Docker. Docker for developers was episode 80. Yeah. Back in April of 2018, so almost three years ago, right? So we've been using this stuff for a while, but I mean, the more that we've used it, the more we've bought into it wholeheartedly, and it just so happens that we've kind of been forced, it's been forced down us anyways from the Kubernetes standpoint, and and we kind of love it. <laughs> so, I think it's just uh, like that's the state of the world, though. Like, that, like yeah. you know, like I think, I think we're just reflecting – you know, a lot of the development world in general. Well, you know, what's funny if we remember right back then, I think one of the big questions, at least at the time was, okay, so Docker's cool and all, and these container things that everybody's talking about, they're neat and all, but are they production ready? Right. That was, that was sort of the, the whole thing back then was like, but are you really going to run your production code on this? And the answer now is, well, Google been doing it for a while. Now it's like, Oh, you're not doing that? Why not? Like you can you can use your resources so much better. Why wouldn't you go this route? So, you know, everything's fully shifted from the I don't know to wait, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, you should be doing this. Um All right, so my next one, this one's a little bit off the wall. Uh but one of our other friends, Bobby, had mentioned this to me. And he's the one who got me on board with this one. And it's Oh My ZSH. So Z Shell, I think, is it the default in Mac now? I think it, it is. is. Now. Yeah, it is now. So Z Shell by itself is, I mean, it's a, it's a shell, whatever. But Oh My ZSH is actually really cool. And, and the reason is, is because it does the things that Outlaw hates, <laughs> which is simplifies understanding and knowing all the underlying commands. Okay, and, wait a minute. I take issue <laughs> with the way you described that. It does not, sir. So, in fairness, I completely agree with Outlaw on these things, right? Like, if you don't know Git, learn the Git commands. Learn why you do them so that you understand, and if you need to go to another environment, you can do it. However, in your day-to-day stuff, like, the the typical Git flow for me, right, is something along the lines of, you know, check status, then, you know, pull latest, then commit, whatever, right? Like, there's there's five or six steps that you do. 50 times a day if you're productive. I do it like two times a day. So what's cool about Oh My ZSH is they have all these plugins, like tons and tons of plugins. And really what they are are shortcuts for being able to do things. So if you get like their Git plugin, one of the things that's really cool about it is they have these aliases you can do. So Git branch, like Git checkout branch is is one that's always kind of interesting, right? Like you do a Git checkout dash B and then whatever, right? So 
they have uh, – there's a shortcut on here somewhere. But I, I'll, I'll go with an easier one. If you want to force delete a branch, if you do get branch dash dash delete and then, you know, ABC, if it was your branch name, it'll be like, hey, I don't know that this thing's fully merged. I'm not sure that you really want to delete it. And you're like, oh, okay, I should have done dash capital D. And so typically you'll type in get branch dash capital D and then your branch name delete it. Well, oh, my ZSH – makes it a whole lot easier because you can say GB capital D and then just type in your branch name and it's gone, right? So it saves you keystrokes. And so the upside is you have all these shortcuts for doing things that usually you type it a bunch for. So you can save a little bit of time on your tendons and your fingers. The downside is if it's not in an environment that you are going to go use, you're probably going to forget those commands. But, but let's be real. In today's world, none of us are going anywhere, <laughs> so we're all working on our own keyboards at home. So take advantage of the savings and, and use something like this. Okay, so let me let me describe this thing from a non fanboy point of view then, because <laughs> you heard you heard you heard Alan's uh, fanboy uh, uh, description of this thing, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it real. <laughs> so basically. Uh, the 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 quote plugins that they're that they're creating is um you know not to take anything away from it, the, it but basically it, it falls into like one of two things is what the plugins are going to provide either it's going to provide some aliases for your your environment so if you're you know an ubuntu user or a mac user like you might be familiar with like setting up an alias to uh you know like like we've talked about aliasing kubectl as k in the past right so uh you know this is going to th- these plugins that omiz shell provides uh you know it's going to set up a ton of aliases for you and then the other type of thing that it may or may not set up depending on what the plugin is are functions so uh if you want to do like maybe, maybe a common thing that you need to do. And I don't know why, but maybe like your scripting needs, you know, are your scripting needs. And so you need to like oftentimes run a script that can return the username of the uh, current get user. Right. And so in, instead of trying to like uh get config list and then, you know, grep out that username and, and whatever, there's a, a function called like get underscore current underscore user underscore name, right? That, that the, the get plugin provides for you. So those are the two basic groups of things. You're either going to get aliases or functions. Now to Alan's joke about like, you know, this goes back to my consistency with like canines, right? Where like, I prefer to like, just know the commands. And then that way it doesn't matter. Like I could, I, you know, if a friend like, Hey, can you help me out on my computer? I could be like, yeah, sure. And I'm still comfortable with, I'm, I remember how to do the thing. Right. Cause you like, you learn that command and going back to my, like, you know, life is short and, you know, brain cells are finite. Like I, I don't want to take the time to learn all of these new aliases. And that, that's the thing is like, if you want to take the time to learn all the aliases, then by all means, like you could, you could be a rock star with it on your computer and you know, away you go. 
Yeah, it's I mean, when we call them aliases, the thing that's that's a little bit misleading about it, I mean, I guess it is the same thing as a Linux alias, but it, it almost same. feels like a shell script, right? Like a lot of these aliases are basically really quick, you know, short aliases that you're passing parameters into. So it feels more like you're calling a shell script when you're doing these as opposed to just an alias. But I think in Linux, it's it's really the same thing. It, but- it's literally the, the these plugins are literally calling the alias command for you to set right. up your environment with all of the aliases. So, yep. <clears throat> you know, it, it really is the same thing as just to doing a, a an alias yourself. Yeah. But I mean, like, here's an example of one that's really crazy is if you want the Git log with a pretty graph and it's got all these parameters and garbage that nobody's ever going to remember. Let's be honest. There's like, there's one right here. Uh, The alias is G L O L, which everybody can remember that. Like that's, that's amazing. So G law, um, what is that? Like Git log one line. What is that doing? Log something no but here's the thing get log dash dash graph space dash dash pretty equal percent cred percent age percent c reset dash percent c you get the point like nobody is ever going to remember that so now you have a useful thing that you might actually use the get log graphs for because you don't have to go google every single time you want to use this right so that's where oh my zsa shines and by the way that plugin link that i have there there's hundreds of yeah. these plugins, right? So what can get, and this is where I will caution, right? If you have one or a few plugins that you might want to use, that's cool, right? Otherwise, you're going to get crammed full of aliases that are probably going to end up conflicting at some point in time or whatever if you start installing 20 of these things. So, you know, pick and choose what you want and what you really spend your time in if you want to go this route. But I, I definitely like the idea of shortening the number of keystrokes I have to remember. Probably the, do. the better thing to do would be like, if you were going to use it as like, like that, the G L O L, you know, like maybe right. there's some that you want, but like, uh, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would try to like learn all of the aliases. You Agreed. Know, Cause Agreed. You know, most of them don't matter. Uh, maybe I don't know, but like, like, uh, you know, the one for Kube Cuddle, uh, there's Keti, like K E T I. So if you wanted to Kube Cuddle exec, uh, into an interactive terminal, then, uh, you know, to a pod, you could use Keti, right? I just push S. Yeah. So that's how you shell it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I'll give you one more reason why Oh My ZSH is really good is if you get tired of dealing with themes based on the shell that you've got, right? Like if you're in, in Mac OS, they've got a handful of themes. Huh. Oh, my ZSH has a lot, <laughs> like a lot, a lot. So if, if you can't, if you can't be comfortable with one of them that you have in your current shell, chances are you can find one that's pretty close to what you want in the Oh My ZSH theme library. So they've, they've got a lot of good ones. So, you know, the plugins, the themes, those are really what you come for. Well, okay. I'm glad you said that last sentence because I was really going to say like, if you really want to talk about Oh My Z shell, like the themes are really what you should care about. Like, right. Forget all They're those good. plugins, forget all that nonsense. Like, and they're really good. The themes, the themes, especially like the things that you can see in Git, uh, where it's like, oh, hey, you're plus, 
your local branch is plus one uh, commit, you know, from the to the remote, but you're minus seventy three to that remote, mm-hmm. right? Like you, that kind of functionality that you could just see directly there on uh, on that that command line, you know, as part of your like a uh, what do you call it? The the your prompt. Right. So that that's the part that's killer about it. It's really like, nice. And so plugins. what he's talking about is additional information you get for having the plugins or the themes or whatever that you wouldn't have gotten in just a normal bash type environment. So yeah, the, there's a lot of cool little features in it. So yeah, good stuff. Who's next? Oh, it's it's Jay Z next again. Is it? It is. I'm running out. Okay, so well, how about- uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, who- well, I was going to say, like, uh, what if we take a break? Pause for station identification. All we right. can do that. Station, station. Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring platform for real-time observability and detailed insights into Docker performance. Enhance visibility into container orchestration with a live container view and easily detect clusters that are consuming excess resources using an auto-generated container map. Out of the box, Datadog collects critical metrics from each Docker container so you can get immediate visibility into aggregated and disaggregated service-level traffic. And uh, as uh, as I like to do, I was just browsing around the Datadog website because it's really inspiring. And uh, so you can you can browse by product so you can see really cool visualizations, recommendations for like network monitoring and uh, how they set up uh, what they have available for like serverless products. You can look by industry, which is also really cool. You can look at uh, like recommendations for gaming or healthcare uh, use cases, DevOps, of course. Uh, I'm, I'm only hitting like zero percent of what's available here it's real uh, there's so much available on the website or um what I, i've uh, been really interested in lately is that the cloud monitoring so like uh, kubernetes uh has got a whole section on it and the uh, the visualizations that are available for it so i mean if you want to know if things are working or they're about to stop breaking stop working then uh, datadog is just a fantastic way to do it and the website's just amazing you gotta you gotta check it out yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever, if you guys have ever run into this, but like when it comes to monitoring, uh, like for Docker and, you know, any new containers or, or Kubernetes, like, did you know that like Datadog is for real? Like they are the de facto source. Like they are the how to, like you want to know how to do something. Datadog knows how to monitor it. Cause I don't know about you guys. Like y- you want to like figure out like, Hey, how do I monitor this thing in Kubernetes, for example? Right. How do I monitor this container? Datadog's written a blog article or three about it. I- I'm reading this, uh, this O'Reilly book called Kubernetes best practices. I kid you not. There were several, it, it, there were several references to Datadog as being like one of the, like, this is how it was done. This is how it was formed. Here's one of the original, like, you know, best practices for how to do the monitoring. So they know what they're doing when they, when it comes to monitoring uh, containers and, you know, like Joe mentioned, they have a whole slew of blog, blog articles for Kubernetes, for Docker, whatever your technology choice is. If you're not already, you need to try Datadog today. Start by signing up for a free 14 day trial and receive a Datadog t-shirt after creating just one dashboard. Visit datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to get started. Again, 
That's datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to get started with your trial of Datadog and find out just why they are the experts at monitoring. All right. So it's that time of the show where we again ask if you haven't already and you're feeling like you're in a giving mood. I mean, it's the new year. Why not? You know, if you have a chance, go up and leave us a review. We have a link on codingblocks.net slash review where we might have some useful links there. That that may be misleading at this point, but but if you really want to put a smile on our face, you know, reach out to us with a review and, you know, say thanks or, you know, just leave leave some some good vibes out there. We really do appreciate it. We read them. Obviously, we we mention them on the show all the time. So, uh we appreciate the time and and appreciate you guys listening. All right. Well, with that, we will head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. Uh, so a few episodes back, we asked, how often should you update your resume? And your choices were, once a year, any longer than that, and I'll forget everything. Or, as often as I remember, might as well do it while it's on my mind. Or, right before I start the job search, no point in wasting time otherwise. Or lastly, wait, you make it sound like I'm supposed to be updating that thing. We also asked, how often do you update your resume? <laughs> and your choices there were, once a year, you're any longer than that, and I'll forget everything. Or, as often as I remember, might as well do it while it's on my mind. Wait, these sound the same. <laughs> right before I start the job search, no point wasting my time otherwise. Or lastly, wait, you make it sound like I'm supposed to be updating that thing. All right. So, uh, this is what, episode 149. So, Alan, thanks to, uh, uh, what was his, T-Tux, I think was his, uh, T-Tucko? T-Tucko. Yeah. Uh, thanks to his fantastic, uh, scheme here, it would be your, uh, turn to go first. So how, how often should you update and how often do you update your resume? I think the should, I'm going to go with as often as I remember that that's the should, and we'll go with 35%. And how often do you update? I'm going to say right for the job search. I'm going to go 65%. Okay. All right. Uh, A little mild there. A little mild there. Uh, I'm going to say that should, uh, whatever Alan said, but 50%. uh, (laughs) I couldn't find it. What episode was the survey on? Was it 146? Oh, you tried to go Uh, find the numbers. No, it was like episode uh, three. 20. Yeah, twenty. No, I just—I oh. literally—I just couldn't remember the the option it was. But the, what the whatever the one was like, yeah, I do it pretty often. Or uh, you should do it pretty often at fifty percent. And for uh, right before the job search, I'm going to put that at squarely at ninety percent. Yeah, that's probably much closer. I hate it that you're going to beat me on that one. <laughs> Wait, so you're you're know. picking the same ones as as Alan? Yeah, then. yeah, just higher percentages because uh, I live bold. Go big bold, or go home. Boldly? Yeah. yeah. Okay, you're going to boldly go where Alan went. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I get the fire sauce to talk about, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, Fuego. 
okay. So then for how often should you update your resume? The number one answer was right before I start the job search. No point wasting my time otherwise. Really? 43% of the vote. All right. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that felt wrong. I, I agree. Like for the should? Yeah, yeah, that's got LinkedIn, right? You already have all the information available. So I I have thoughts on this, but we'll wait until the survey until we get the results here. Okay. okay. So we both lost that one. Okay. How often do you update your resume? Right before I start the job search, no point wasting my time otherwise, 62%. Oh, we both did. We both overblew it. Wow. What, What was second? Uh, second was a tie between as often as I remember and wait, you make it sound like I'm supposed to. All right. So I have a thought on this should and take it or leave it. And and I'm not implying anything on me personally for this, but I think you should put it in there as, as frequently as you possibly can for one reason. Don't put everything in there, right? Like, so I'll give an example. Let's say LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a great example that that Joe just said. Is let's say that you're working on Visual Basic six, but you also happen to be working on something that you're excited about, like I don't know, Elasticsearch, right? You might want to go put Elasticsearch up on LinkedIn as one of the things you're doing in your resume area or whatever. Maybe leave out the VB6 unless you want it. Like if that's what you love, then sure, put it up there. But my thinking is this. The best time to ever get a job is when you already have one, right? And again, I'm not saying anything on me personally. I'm personally happy with what I'm doing and where I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) But let's be honest, like, if you really dig Elasticsearch, for example, right, put it up there, have it in your resume. And then if people are looking for something that is going to require a lot of Elasticsearch and that's where your heart is, you might be presented with an opportunity that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise, right? So keeping it up to date is good for that. Another thing that is really good about keeping it up to date frequently is if you do that, then it doesn't set up red flags from anybody that's in your LinkedIn that works with you at your organization and says, oh, Outlaw just updated his resume for the first time in two and a half years. Oh, that's dirty. What's up? (laughs) You know what I mean? That's some dirty reasoning there, Alan. (laughs) Hey, man, look, I'm just... Here's how you update it on the sly. (laughs) Right. And that's the problem. Like, I, I, no lie, in the past, I remember at one point I had updated my LinkedIn and somebody was like, yo, uh, you getting ready to leave? And I was like, huh? But, and of course I was, but, you know, (laughs) it it was, it's... It seriously is a double-edged sword. So if you make sure you're constantly keeping it fresh, then you're not sending off warning bells anywhere. And at the same time, if somebody does have an amazing opportunity, that might be the exact thing that would keep a smile on your face for the next two or three or four or five years, you could be missing out by doing it. So that should one, like I totally do not understand right before the job search. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
I'm just going to export LinkedIn. There's got to be a way to do it. Is there a tool to like export LinkedIn as resume? There probably I thought, is. I thought LinkedIn already provided a way to where you could just save it, save your profile out as a PDF or something. Yep, you can absolutely save it as a PDF. That's it, man. That's it. That's how I'm doing it from now on. Yeah, man. So, you know, so, like, so many of those HR systems are like, okay, now you got to upload it. Oh, we didn't get anything. Now you got to fill it all in. You're like, oh. Right, right. <laughs> But yeah, man, LinkedIn is actually a really great tool for that kind of stuff. I mean, you will likely get harassed by a bunch of, you know, headhunters trying to get you to join companies, but man, update those skills there. Get people to, to, uh, what, what do they call it when, when, you know, uh, one of you guys basically says, yeah, yeah, he knows JavaScript. Endorse? I can't think of what it's I thought they got uh, rid of the endorsing. Oh, the endorsement. Yeah, that's did. what it was. Is it gone? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay, I, I think they got rid of that now. It's like you can select some skills that you want to show up or something, but I don't I don't remember how it works. Anymore. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, man, keep those things up to date. Do it do it you know, not every day, but put put that stuff in there. Yeah, so uh so I just went and exported it as resume. And uh, I was not it, it immediately not happy with how they arranged it and what things they emphasized. I kind of put like certifications up higher than I would have wanted. But it does look like you can do a uh, you can create a resume from profiles. They have like profiles built in, and you can go kind of search for them and whatever. And so you can kind of customize it. So that's pretty cool. So it's still a good way of keeping your data in resume in uh, LinkedIn and then generating a, a resume from that. So that seems like the best way to keep it up to date. Cool. I like it. Hey, I'm going to go ahead and apply for some jobs now while we're at it. <laughs> and, uh, no, I'm just kidding. All right. So, uh, yeah. So no words on, the, on the, on the, how often do you though? No, that's totally legit. Yeah. <laughs> you ever notice how like interview questions though, like there was a period of time where like interview questions were like really silly, like mind thinkers, you know? You remember that? Yeah. So let me ask you guys this. What's the difference between a hippo and a zippo? Oh, oh man, I've heard this one before. You ready? I'm ready for this. One is really heavy and the other is a little lighter. (laughs) See, I threw in a dad joke and you weren't even prepared for it. How you like that? That was good. That was good. Uh, that one was uh, from Mike RG, of course. Of course. Yes. It's so good. Like, it's like as soon as you have hippo in a sentence, like that's all I could think about. So I forgot <laughs> about the other part. I'm just like, hippo. <laughs> How about uh, for today's survey, we ask. Now, remember, because Alan kind of gave you a hint, right, uh, uh, before when he mentioned the six key. So which hand do you type the six key with? And your choices are the left, because duh, it's closer. Or the right, probably because of my ergo keyboard. This this one hits really close to home right now. I got to say, I have a little bit of PTSD from this whole six key arrangement thing. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Yeah, I mean, when Alan asked the question, I was just like, what? That's not even you with this, this your left hand. Like, that's how you do it. 
Man, I, I'm seriously curious what people say when they come back with this, because I, I think I told you guys, like, I did some Googling, and apparently it's not a fixed thing. Some people learn with their left hand, some people learn with their right hand. That's and a lot of these ergo keys have decided that they're going to force that decision down your throat, <laughs> and, and I don't like it. So, uh, so I gotta say, so we, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier and I realized that I, uh, I don't type properly, even though I thought I did. I, uh, I keep my ring finger on the A key. So I basically don't use my pinkies, pinkies for any typing of letters, but I gotta know how do you control A and control C and all that stuff? Like what, how do you do that? Pinky, man. Pinky. So how do you control A? You do control with the pinky. Well, in that case, you're moving your hand. So yeah, I control I control A with my pinky on the right control or left control and my ring on the A. I move my fingers around like I probably shouldn't. I probably should. Yeah, yeah, I should probably see. press the control with my right hand and the A Crossover. with my left. That's advanced technique there. No, no, no. That's with the, the right hand control, I should probably hit the right. Yeah, hand there's a right control button. No, nobody uses that. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> no, but but I, I do it wrong. I actually, yeah. I do pinky middle finger for the A. Pinky middle finger for yeah, the A? I think. Man, no, I don't even know. I think pinky. it's pinky middle. Wow, that's weird. Well, at least on this keyboard. So that's the prop, right? Like I am now in keyboard. Oh, um, yeah. You don't even purgatory. know what you would do on a normal keyboard anymore. Yeah. So the keys on this Zergotech are much bigger. So I'll give you an example. We know what's to the left of you guys' A key. It's the caps lock, right? Mm-hmm. You want to take a stab at what's to the left of my A key? Function keys. No. You, oh, Josiah. So close. Escape? The backspace button. Oh, hell no. So- <laughs> <laughs> That's a disaster. <laughs> How did you do that? But he's not wrong. So, so I'm telling you, like, I'm truly, my brain has gone through some, some, some serious stretching over the past month and a half with these keyboards. Right. But, but yeah, maybe on a regular keyboard, my, my ring finger would have been the A, but when I do, when I do like, okay, so are you guys with me in the, anytime you're in visual studio or visual studio code, you're always control Sing. Like, I know I hit that. Like if I type five letters, I'm like control S five more letters, control S. I'm always saving my documents like yeah. a ridiculous amount of times. That is always my pinky and my index finger on the S. So I don't know why I shift my finger so much when I do that stuff, but that's what huh. I do. I, I mean, I shift my hand too for that. So like I said, I, I probably should technically be using the right hand control and you know using my pinky for the right hand control and then using the uh, you know, for the S, it would probably be the ring finger, but I shift it, but I don't use the index. I use the middle finger. Yeah. I think we're both off a finger and in, in how we do that. So yeah, it, but yes, all of this came down to more or less my sculpt ergo. The six is on the left hand on both the kinesis advantage Two and this Zergotech. The six is on the right hand. And I can't tell you how many times I've mistyped numbers on these keyboards and how many times I've about lost my mind because the keys are not in the spots. And and it's honestly because those number keys are the least amount of my typing. 
I get them wrong every time because I just don't exercise those muscles enough and it drives me crazy. But I'm super curious though, because Joe, you're saying you have your pointer finger on your left hand on like a normal, like 104 keyboard layout. Uh, you would have it on the D. Yep. So, I mean, you, you know that those nubs are on that, (laughs) that F key for a reason, right? Like, what did you, (laughs) did you look at that and you're like, huh, manufacturing defect. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, when I learned typing, uh, back in the day, so back in, um, fun tidbit about, uh, you know, (laughs) this is how, this is how old I am. Right. Uh, my middle school had a business class that I signed up for. And all it was was teaching typing on typewriters. Because <laughs> that's what business people did. They tasked it. It's like, here, we're going to spend a year teaching you data entry. Congratulations. And seriously, all it was was like, here, here's like, it's like type this up, type that up. Like, uh-oh, here's the whiteout. <laughs> Come get it at the teacher's desk. You know what's great about this is when you said, hey, you know those nubs are out there for a reason. Joe Zach like looked down at the keyboard. <laughs> Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, wait, really? Like, man, if I play guitar, I can't feel those nubs. <laughs> you know what's great, though? He's jettisoned his pinkies. Like, they're dead to him. Yeah. He he doesn't use them. Yeah. I, I barely use them for guitar either. I'm terrible about it. I, I, I always knew that was a bad habit of mine. I used to even put rubber bands on to try and make, make it so I didn't, like, just fl- have them flinging off into space while I was trying to use them. Rubber bands? What? You put rubber bands on your pinkies? Yeah, it's it's common. Like people will do that. Like you put a rubber band to like keep your finger from like, like if you're picking or something like from flying off. Like you're holding a teacup. I also do. By the way, if I'm drinking water or tea, whatever, like the pinky is up. I I purposely flies out. I purposely try to use my pinky when I play. Oh, I purposely try to, but it's impossible because it's like flung off into outer space. I mean, I, I will say like, okay, so as it, as it specific to guitar, like, uh, you know, like if I'm, if I'm playing scales or whatever, like I, I will try to, you know, stay in the habit of using my pinky there and there'll be like certain songs for parts of the song where I'll use it. But they, I have heard that they'll say like, uh, you know, for some parts you want to use like your quote, strong, a strong finger, you know? So like if I need to do like, uh, uh, a vibrato i wouldn't use a pinky finger for that no because you can't control it as well well yeah you, i mean it's just yeah I, I would have i would have more i would feel like i'd have more control with you know another finger you know what's yeah. so awesome about this this all came from which side of the keyboard is the six because <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was like what do you mean there's no way i could get that with my right hand it'd be impossible i mean when alan originally asked this question like i immediately went and I, I I I can't. If I had a third hand, I would take a picture. But <laughs> I I immediately like reached with both uh, index fingers at the same time to the six key, and the stretch that my right hand has to do has to do to reach that on a normal you know keyboard layout, not an ergo keyboard layout. Then I'm like, there's no way. But now, do I ever use my right hand to type that six? Sure, I'm sure that there are times where I'm like. I completely don't even care and you know hit hit every number with you know whatever who cares it doesn't matter but uh yeah no you should it's definitely it hurts my soul man thing. like I, I don't I'm unhappy 
that people have decided to move it to the right side of the keyboard. Like I, I feel like it is it's against all human will that, that anybody decided to do this. It really bothers me. You know, not to harp on the ergo keyboards too much longer, but you know, the one thing that's weird about it though, is that like a common thing on the ergo keyboard layouts is they ditch the numpad, which mm-hmm. we've discussed. I'm fine with that decision on a laptop, but you know, for a desktop, I'm, I kind of prefer to have it. I like to have it. Because, you know, for like, you know, any kind of like, uh, doesn't have to necessarily be like quote accounting type stuff, but, um, it could be like, you know, any kind of account reconciliation that you're doing or whatever, like, you know, or like just spreadsheet stuff. Like I kind of, I like to have that as an available as, you know, I like to have that there. And it's a shame that they all ditch that. Well, I can tell you why. And I, and I've actually seen it come up multiple times. And it's one of the reasons why the Sculpt Ergo is so popular is because when they get rid of that part of the keyboard, your mouse is closer. So you're not moving your arm as much to get to your mouse to and from your key. So it's a much minimal, a more minimalistic motion than the others. And that's why they do it. Now, whether or not you like it or not, you know, again, I guess you could go with another split keyboard that, that has that thing on the side, but that is the reason that they do it. I think that's going to be, um, I started to say it was going to be the biggest challenge I was going to have with the Moonlander. Oh um, no! <laughs> oh no, sir! And then I remembered. Whoa, wait a minute! Uh, no, it will not be the biggest no. challenge. Um, Using that keyboard is a challenge, and and hopefully I, I've got to try and get that video together where uh, I did a. Uh, like a hot take for outlaw on just using that thing the first time. And it, it's uh, it's pretty comical. So we're going to hope <laughs> to get that video up here pretty soon. It was extremely comical. I can't wait to see what people think of that. Uh, it was, it was like sad, Joe, you should see, you should have yeah. seen my words per minute, how pathetic they were with, with that Moonlander. Cause it's an awesome keyboard. Um, but it it will take me some time to get acclimated to it, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. So I want to see this. Yeah. So so how about um how about this? If a cowboy is happy, does that make him a Jolly Rancher? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Biker G. It was. Hey, how'd you guess? That's so good. <laughs> All right, so uh, I think we were continuing on with uh, Joe's uh, next pick. Okay. Uh, mine. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was going to say the K word again. Now, my next favorite tool is one I've mentioned before and talked about uh, quite a bit, and it's been quite controversial. I mentioned I still uh, have to uh, uh, explain myself uh, from time to time on the notion of Jamstack. <laughs> and compile time rendering. But Netlify has only gotten better, as far as I can tell. Uh, it's still an amazing service to use for publishing websites. And so it's still uh, absolutely, totally free. Uh, they'll build your static site. Now, uh, they have limited uh, the number of builds you can do a month. Uh, you have like a certain number of build minutes. But unless you're going just crazy, checking in all the time, uh, doing huge builds, uh, you're not going to hit that. So, um, 
Yeah, it's still the same thing as it's a service that will build your static site. It'll run like your uh, your Go static site generator or Ruby or Node-based static site generator. It will publish your files. It will set up with the website. It will um, give you a checkbox for HTTPS. has a, a lot of really nice uh, options for like shadowing and just like all the kind of modern stuff you expect for like uh, like modern JavaScript apps. So you can have like pretty URLs and stuff like that. And it's all just like dead simple. Like you give them their, your Git repository and it's just done somehow. Uh, it's a fantastic tool for building a website. Like if you need to build a resume site or, uh, just, just do something fun and publish it so people can see it, then uh, I think it's the best, uh, best choice by far. And if you want to step it up a notch, say you want to do some backend stuff, then they have a really easy path to do that. You can sign up and pay like, I think it's like $15 maybe for the, the basic plan. And uh, they act, they um, give you support for uh, easy auth, so you can have like users authentication, and also easy uh, serverless integration. So you get some number of build uh, minutes, and of course you can go and spend as much money as you want. I'm sure they'll they'll be fine with that. But uh, they also handle the auth with the the, the uh, serverless components. So it's just really easy. Like I mean, dead simple to set up a really nice website. With serverless backend, it's going to be really cheap. I mean, it's just like a fantastic way to build a website. Like if someone, you know, like you always say, like someone asks you, like, uh, how do you build a website right now? You know, the answer used to always be, it depends. Now I really do feel like the answer is Netlify unless I can't. Hmm. Uh, this is this is like just the default way I think about websites now. If I'm if I'm going to build a web application, like this is what I'm aiming for. Unless there's some strong hard reason why I need to do something that deviates from that. I like it. So free, basically, unless you need to support some sort of backend that that you need to host yourself. Yep. And if you want to go your own way, you want to do your own serverless components, or you want to do a traditional kind of API server, like whatever, that's fine. It's just on you to kind of manage the authentication and all that stuff, the OAuth, like all that stuff, which is not exactly fun or sexy, but uh, there's nothing stopping you from just doing your own thing and just using them for the front end. But I'm just lazy, and I like other people that set up that stuff and do a better job than I would. <laughs> Very nice. Jam stack. Jam stack. That's been a minute. Yep. All right. Cool. So then I guess my next one. No, wait. No, it's not my turn. It's it's Mike's turn. It can be my line. turn. All it's right. Your turn. I, I, I don't mind. <clears throat> I'm <Okay>. done. Done. He's <laughs> out. Oh, I am not going to be done for a minute. Um so I don't know that we've ever talked about this one, but the Jira stopwatch. I just felt like it it has it should have earned a place a long time ago if we have never mentioned it. I, I don't recall if we have, but um, it's basically a a tool. You can go find the source for it on GitHub, but uh, you can go to JiraStopwatch.com and find um, you know screenshots about it and all that, and it'll it'll navigate you over to GitHub to get the latest version. But uh, basically, if you are a Jira user, then you can. Uh, set it up to auth to your Jira server and uh, it can pull in all your epics, all your tickets. You can, um, you know, as you're, as you're typing in a ticket, it'll tell you, you know, the, uh, the, the title of the ticket and whatnot. And then you can just click a little button, a little play button to start tracking time for that ticket. And then when you're ready, when you're done, there's another button to go in, uh, 
publish that time to that ticket. And if your organization, if you keep track of your time spent on the tickets, then this is a super helpful way. And you can have, you can load up like, you know, I don't, I don't even know if there is a limit on the number of, uh, line, you know, tickets that you could have in there. Um, but you could, you could load up a bunch of different tickets in there. And then that way, if you need to bounce back and forth between tickets, you could just hit pause on one play on another. Or if your organization, for some reason, I don't know why this would be a thing. Um, but if you are allowed to log time to concurrent tickets, then you can do that as well. You can have it set up to where, um, as soon as your machine is locked, then it'll automatically pause the tickets, the ticket, uh, time for you. And when you unlock the machine, it can resume, uh, for you. So, uh, just a great little easy way to keep track of all your time and submit your time um, for your tickets. Is that embarrassing though? <laughs> that we have to, that we live in a world no, well, where we have just to. Just like, like, I know for me, it's like sometimes I'll spend forever and then like the commit will be like two lines. I'll be like, Oh geez. Oh, I see that. Uh, I logged seven hours on this thing. Uh, I got over being embarrassed by that stuff years ago. That's part of yeah. that's That's the developer life, right? Okay. That's Alan's response. Uh, my response <laughs> is yes, totally. I, I totally get it, but I still do it anyways. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. because the There's problem about is the ticking clock that just makes me feel like it's just watching me like, uh, <laughs> Sauron's eye. Yeah. But, but the problem is, is that like, it makes it easy for me to be able to say like, okay, um, here, here's a, here's an example of what I mean is that like, let's say that I have a simple one or two liner, you know, thing that I want to do. And, and the writing of that is obviously short, right? Like that didn't take a lot of time. But sometimes the testing of it, it can take ridiculous amounts of time, right? And I think that it's important to be able to like go back to, to, to have that evidence and be able to like go back to your manager and say like, look, this thing really wasn't a big deal, but it took this amount of time. And here's the reason why it took the time. And it might be like, like I gave the, like I just said the example of testing, but I mean, we've joked in the past with like taking EXTJS, for example, where oh we have spent, you know, hours, maybe even days like debugging an issue where you find it's an issue in the framework and, and like literally the change is like at a comma here, right? Or, or something ridiculous like that, right? And, and I think it's important that like regardless of the, uh, amount of size of the change for that, for that fix or that feature or whatever, you know, to, to, to have the amount of time and be able to like, you know, show that like, Hey, yeah, it took a long time, but here's the reason why and to have it logged. So I think it's important to have like a, you know, I, I like to have a more accurate, um, logging of the time, you know, even if it is, even if I am embarrassed by the amount of time I spent on something. Hey, and I'll also plus one, this one too. It is a great tool, but, one thing worth mentioning is this is a windows only thing. I yeah. believe it's an MSI installer. So yeah. Yeah, it is windows only, but Hey, source is up on GitHub. You could easily uh, port that if you wanted to, you know, fork that repo and make a, uh, an Ubuntu version or a Mac version. I feel like there's going to be a Kotlin version in the future here. 
All right. So I guess uh, Jay-Z ran out of So I'm not going to belabor this one much at all, but I think it's a nice alternative to the K9s tool that was mentioned earlier. So Jay-Z and I are squarely in the K9s. Yes. world because i like the keyboard interaction with it right but i like to go fast right i, 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 I want to go fast so there are others with the people that we work with that much prefer this other tool called lens that is another kubernetes ui except this is more like an ide it, it sort of reminds me of visual studio code it allows you to navigate the kubernetes world inside an actual ide and it's done really well. The few times that I've used it, I can say that it's good, but it's a lot more mouse moving and it's a lot more finding menus and expanding trees and all that kind of stuff, right? As opposed to K9s where you're just hitting enter as you want to drill into things. So, you know, if you are more comfortable in the GUI world and you want to be able to navigate quickly your Kubernetes clusters and all that kind of stuff, then this is a really great tool. Cool, cool. All right. You want to go next? Yeah, sure. I mean, this one, uh, I can't believe that nobody else said this one. So I felt like this one deserved to mention in the year of 2020, how can you not mention zoom here, here with the insane user base that are, you know, growth that they, that they had this year. Um, you know, the three of us, we have been longtime zoom users for years now. And in fact, uh, I think we even um, introduced our previous company to it, our previous organization. We introduced them to Zoom and they ended up, uh, um, you know, getting, getting the company set up on it. Um, uh, but I mean, we've been using it like so behind the scenes, you know, so that you know, um, for this, this podcast, we use Zoom and have for many, many, many years now. So, you all know Zoom, you know, you've heard about it, whatever. But we've also have had the privilege of using like just about every other uh, platform there is for video calls and whatnot. So, you know, name it, uh, you know, Skype and Teams and Slack and uh, Google Hangouts, WebEx. Uh, who am I leaving out? I'm leaving out something, I feel like. Oh, oh, like go to my meeting and go to my right. PCs. Or, yeah, that's the or, last thing. You're uh, go to my meeting or, or yeah, whatever. Go to so, meeting. Go to meeting. Um, I will say that <laughs> hands down, Zoom is the best video calling software out there for screen sharing. Because there are some of those where you can't even, you can see the other person's screen, but you can't actually read it. And when you're trying to like, you know, pair program remotely, uh, you know, and if you're doing it through, through your video calls, like that matters. The other person should be able to read what you're trying to share. So yeah, zoom. It matters a lot. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. No question. I, I can't believe that none of us called it out either. Like it, it, good on you. Yeah. For remembering that one. Cause yeah, it's probably, it's probably the tool outside of our coding environment that we use the most, right? Well, well, not Zoom for our business, but but video calling and sharing type stuff, right? Like it is hyper important even, this year. Yeah, even prior to to pandemic, though, we yes. we were all the three of us were heavy, heavy, heavy uh, video calling users. Yep. 
And it, it is it is definitely a fantastic tool. And and let's not forget they got slammed yeah. at the beginning yeah. of the pandemic for having security and privacy issues and they addressed them fast. Right. Like they, they came out firing and made sure that they got all that stuff taken care of. So, and it's one of the reasons why none of us could ever join our calls anymore. So it's, <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. I mean, they, they had, I mean, they, there's, uh, there's some statistics out there. I, I can't find it right now, but they, they've had like just amazing growth. And like you mentioned them responding to, um, you know, like security flaws and things like that that were found in the beginning of the pandemic. Which okay, I mean, great that they did, but the the fact that they were even able to handle the bandwidth oh, it's been nuts, phenomenal. Like they, well, we've never talk about being prepared. Off. Yeah, it's it's been amazing. All right, so I'm going to flip my last two here because um, my other one's going to lead into the tip of the week. So the next one I have is actually another two four instead of you know separating them out because I think they kind of go hand in hand at least in the way that we've seen them. Prometheus and Grafana. So, I mean, we just wrapped up not too long ago a series on on DevOps stuff, right? And being able to monitor and quick feedback cycles and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that we're sort of unanimous in saying here that having tools like Prometheus, especially if you're in a Kubernetes world, and a tool like Grafana that can expose metrics that Prometheus gives you is just absolutely amazing. What's awesome is when somebody has been working with applications that they've never really had the insights into, like they've never had the ability to monitor things and they've never gotten the metrics out of it. When you introduce that kind of stuff, people go, how did I ever live without this? Right. And the fact that there are tools like this available that are free, that, that people and companies spend time improving and making it so that everybody can benefit from is absolutely amazing. So Prometheus, I'm going to read you what it is just in case you've never heard of it. Prometheus is an open source systems monitoring and alerting toolkit originally built by SoundCloud. So basically it gathers metrics, right? And, and it's a time series database more or less that, that you can query. They have their own query language called PromQL and it allows you to query into the data that is generated, the metrics that your applications give. And there are very standard ways of providing metrics to Prometheus, which the reason why the three of us have been messing with it is because it's sort of because of the way Kubernetes is set up and the way that it handles its logging and its metrics gathering. It's such an easy plugin for Prometheus and it's part of the CNCF, the cloud native uh, compute foundation, I think is what it is. Yeah, I think so. Um, because it's almost always bundled in Kubernetes clusters because it exposes all the metrics that you can then take and query to find out information about how your apps are doing, how your, how your pods are doing and everything else. And then Grafana, what is it? Grafana is an open source visualization and analytics software. It allows you to query, visualize, alert on and explore metrics, no matter where they are stored in plain English it provides you with tools to turn your time series database data, Prometheus, into beautiful graphs and visualizations. So really, it's the graphing, and it also has alerts built in. The thing that I like about 
Grafana for alerts over Prometheus is the fact that you can pull from different data sources, more data sources, right? So now you have one place that you can use to do your alerts and that kind of stuff. But, but those two tools hand in hand, I think are just absolutely amazing for, for the investment that you get in them. So I have a question about uh, Grafana I've been wondering about. So I've been working on like a, a, just a little home project here for I, I want to make like um, a cool dashboard just to kind of have like in my office. So it shows like maybe my steps for the day and the coding box downloads and I don't know, just whatever, like whatever I can figure out how to throw in there. I just thought it'd be cool. And uh, my, my first thought was to go with Grafana because it just seems like really great. It supports multiple data sources. Uh, so if I wanted to use a spreadsheet or if I wanted to use Kubernetes or I want to use Elasticsearch, whatever, I can pull from all that. However, it seems like Grafana is really geared toward like recent data. And I just don't think it would be exciting for a lot of my data sources. It doesn't change like every two seconds. And it really seems like Grafana is like tailored to like real time. So I didn't know if there was like another more general kind of uh, dashboarding type system that I could use that might be more appropriate for like, it doesn't really change in pie charts and like other kind of data then that's not so like focused on recency. Well, with Grafana, you can set your intervals, right? Yeah, you can, but just seem it's like, it kind of scares me. It's like if it's tuned for like every five seconds or whatever, then like, am I kind of abusing it? If I'm trying to do stuff that like shows on like a yearly horizon or whatever. Yeah. That's what I was about to say is like, even though you could have those, uh, tune those intervals, like it's really meant to be like, Hey, here's the last seven days More real time. Yeah. It's not. I, like, I don't hey, know. Here's the last year's worth. Yeah, that's a good question. I'd actually have to look into that. I'm not sure. Yeah. So I don't know if you. Hey, if you have a comment, uh, that'd be great. Because you're you're almost talking about like trending type things, right? Like you you really want to see when things are changing as opposed to what the last you know. Hey, what's the heartbeat of this thing? Yeah, like maybe I want to show my uh, retirement uh, savings or something. You know, which like might be something cool to see over ten years. You know, I don't know, hmm. but. Uh, well, yeah, so I, I don't know if that makes sense to have all, you know, here, here's, here's my way of putting uh, Joe on the spot because, you know, where we left off with, uh, our, our streaming, uh, I don't know if you guys know, I'm now a, a Twitch streamer and, uh, I'm like full on into it. That's all I do. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, I live, live and breathe by the Twitch stream. And, uh, you know, Joe, where we left off with our series was that we were going to add some logging and monitoring and metrics to our, uh, our environment that we were building up in, in Kubernetes there. And so, you know, maybe if we were to like get back to that, I don't know, maybe we would like yeah. be able to answer that question. Maybe this weekend I'm down. <laughs> I'm down. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, uh, I, I was like kind of doing the same thing there. I was like, I wanted to get a little experience with it. So I started using it. It just kind of felt a little awkward, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe like maybe that should be the default. It does look like there are other dashboarding tools out there. I see mosaic. I, I don't or not mosaic, uh, Tableau. But, uh, mm. that, that you start look. running into some serious cash with Tableau if you go down yeah. that road. Well, there's a free like, tier. Oh, yeah, there is, but it looks like it's public. Uh, yeah, um, I, I don't know. It seems like Grafana, I mean, just by the very definition that they, they want you to be able to visualize metrics, right, off your time series databases. And if if you're talking about something that's time series based, then there should be a way to maybe even make it to where the intervals are more calculated for you. You know what I mean? Like you've seen graphs that adjust the axes based off the data that you have. I have to imagine there's a way to be able to query that stuff in a way that makes sense to show in Grafana. You're talking about where like the zero is the scale of the, 
Sometimes right. that can be so frustrating, though. It's I mean, so, like, it totally can. Grafana, Grafana especially can like you can see a visualization in there and you'll see like a graph that like jumps really high. And you're like, Oh my God, what just happened? And then you'll notice that like the scale has been changed to where you're looking at like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. And it's like, right. Oh yeah. Really? Like if you zoom out, then that thing is like pretty flat. So who cares? Oh dude. Yeah. We've talked about that before, right? Like you can make charts tell tales oh, that yeah. are so misleading because it looks like something jumped, but it, it okay. You got one extra thing, but it looked like it doubled. Well, yeah, it do, It did double, but you got one extra, right? Like it wasn't a big deal, right? So, like, I want other stuff too. Like, I want to have a dashboard that's like it shows the weather and also my next meeting that's coming up, and also, okay. you know, whatever, like my calendar. Uh, so I, I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but whatever. Sounds um, like you want a phone and you want some widgets on your screen of your phone. That's true. I, yeah, I think you. Yeah. <laughs> Crap. It's jz.js. That's the uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> on a phone, but like on my wall. There you go. That's called an iPad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, really? But I want it in the console and I just want it scrolling green all the time in case anyone walks in with a camera. It looks like I'm a hacker. Oh, mm-hmm. now you've gone past. Gotcha. This. gotcha. Now we got nothing. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, how about for my next one? I wanted to bring up some of my favorite. Um, Visual Studio plugins. And we've talked about some of these before. Um, maybe probably all of these likely, but at least, uh, at least a couple of these I thought we've mentioned before. But so first I have up is the bracket pair colorizer, which, um, if you've never used it, what it'll do is it'll allow you to, uh, well, I mean, as the name will say, it'll colorize the brackets. So like inside of one, Inside of your method, maybe the brackets are purple, and then you have like a, some other control flow, like an if statement, and those brackets or those curly braces, I'll say, are blue, right? But it, but it's really more than just that because it'll also like underline the method and all of the codes that apply, all of the code that applies to it with the same color as whatever the, the bracket or curly brace was for it. Does that for, um, that same kind of logic applies to arrays. It applies to function, uh, uh, parameters, you know, so a function parameter list, it's just a super easy way of seeing like all of the things that belong together, uh, which, you know, let's face it. If you, if you s- separate out your, your JSON or your YAML or whatever, like, you know, it, it could be spread apart a little bit, Right. So it might be a little bit, uh, might be hard to follow some of that stuff. So even if you are trying to follow like, uh, you know, an uncle Bob's clean code and only have like, you know, more than three lines of code per your method, right. Um, there are times where you might not be able to adhere to that. Never heard of this getting installed as soon as it opened up code again. Oh, really? Oh man. I could have sworn I talked about this one. It is, it is totally awesome. I, 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 I hope you. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Um, cause I, cause I really do like it. Another one I know we had to have talked about this one is called Git lens. And this one is basically, um, just a super n- nice way of like, while you're in your file, in, or, or let me talk about my favorite use of it first. While you're in the file, any one wherever your cursor is, it's immediately showing you in like a subdued text, uh, like a grayed out, you know, kind of text, 
who last changed that line and when and what the commit was. Right now, that's my my one favorite feature about it. But there's so much more that it does that I don't even care to use because you know, of course, command line. But um, but yeah, so like you could go in and and diff files. You can see like uh the the revisions. You know what 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 was changed. Um, you know on the file when and you know things like that. So it's got all your like normal Git tools. But I I just like that one thing where I can like immediately see like. Hey, wait a minute. Did I, I, it was me that changed that line, right? And like, you know, it's just immediately right there. Um, do you guys use that one? Yes. That's a must have. And, and what, what were your, your favorite features about it? I like seeing the, like, if I'm on a current line, who last changed oh, yeah, it, when yeah, it okay. last changed, like, that's, that's my big one. Um, but there were things in here that I didn't even realize happened. There's also that- the hoverovers that happen. Where the hovers are nice. I I don't really take advantage of that, but yeah, you could hover over the line too, and it'll show you like, you know, the message that changed it. Usually, like, I don't know that I keep the mouse there. Uh, I usually have the mouse out of the way. So I guess that's why I don't like, you know, take advantage of that that much. I'll tell you one that I didn't even know existed, but I will be using next. If you click on that link that you had there, Right under features, there's one called revision navigation where you can click forward and backward to go through the revisions of it. So you can actually quickly see the diffs on it. I've, I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. So that, that'll be something I'll try out next go around. Yeah. My favorite is a uh, right click view history. And then you can basically do just that, like kind of walk through it like that. And um, sometimes I, I like just seeing the, the files that are listed like that you change because like every once in a while I'll be like, wait, I changed that file, click on it, and, you know, maybe it's something interesting. Maybe, oh, yeah, I did. That's right, or, you know, whatever. But it's kind of nice to, just to see that information all the time. Yeah, it's yeah. got a truckload of functionality, and I I don't even scratch the surface of it with the use case that I mentioned as my favorite. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely, like, anytime I'm setting up a new environment, it's, like, uh, bracket pair colorizer and Git lens, I don't even know if I would say that like one of those is always first and the other one's always second. Like it's probably a toss up between like those, but those two are definitely like two of the first plugins I install every time. Um, then another favorite of mine is rainbow CSV. And I don't know if you've ever used this one, but if you ever have a truckload of data to look at, then this is a must have. Because let's say that you have a CSV, you know, just a comma delimited list of data, and you want to look at it, it will colorize the fields so that regardless of where, because they're comma delimited, right? So they're not going to like necessarily all be uniformly, not every line isn't going to be uniformly formatted, right? To where one field is directly below the next. And with Rainbow CSV, you can easily see all the fields that are in the same position because it'll colorize them all together. And, you know, when you're looking at a bunch of data, like that is by itself uh, worth its weight in gold. Now, there's the, the, uh, you know, uh, I didn't even realize it until I was like putting the show notes together and saw that it actually has SQL like queries that you can run on it. <laughs> on the CSVs. I didn't even realize I had that. I just use it for the colorization. 
That's really cool. Yeah, RBQL, it says. Interesting. Yeah, I've never seen this one. So, yeah. There's my... Uh, awesome. This is my giant uh, tip of the week episode, uh, and there's yeah. some of mine. I like it. Colorizer is my favorite, though. I love it. So... I didn't, didn't know about it. So, uh... How about this then, Alan? Because you said yours was going to lead into the tip of the week, right? So you have one yep. more left. Yep. So what if what if we just press pause on that, and I go ahead and do my last one, and then we just go straight into the tip of the week? Let's do it. So uh, my last favorite tool here, and we've I know we've talked about this one in the past before, and I believe Alan is the one that turned us all on to this, and that is uh, Commander which is um, hands down the best terminal for Windows. And I dare you to argue with me. Fight me. Um, you will lose. It is it is the best one. It literally like every shell ever in this one thing. Uh, you can have them all tabbed across. You can, you can split them in so you can see them at the same time. So, um, you know, I've definitely had situations where like maybe uh, – I don't know. I want to like do a, a, a cube cuddle logs, you know, minus F in one, but I want to like exec and see some other stuff in another window, but I want to see those at the same time, but I want it to be one self-contained window. And with a uh, commander, you can easily do that. You could have like multiple, uh, you know, terminals, right. Or, you know, multiple shells right there, you know, that you could access all in the same time in the same window. Or like I said, if you wanted them to be just different tabs, you could do that too. Um, I, I can't say enough about, Oh, the other thing that, that's important to note though about this is cause this is building on top of uh Connie Mew, if I remember correctly. Yep. But, uh, the big thing here is that with commander is it's self-contained, like literally you extract the, the, the zip and wherever you put that, that's all that's needed to run. It's not like trying to magically put anything in your registry or, you know, some DLLs somewhere in some, you know, program files directory or whatever. It's just like literally it's right there. So you could put it on a thumb drive. And then if you, you know, if you, if you were like a sysadmin that was walking around from machine to machine, you literally have your, uh, your console of choice with all of your, um, uh, profile set up to walk around with you, like on that thumb drive. Yeah. It, it is still, it, you, you were talking about things that you install every time that you set up a new thing. This, if I have windows, this goes on it. I don't even care if it's a personal computer that I'm not really doing anything else. in. I will not touch a regular command line if I could avoid it. Uh, I will say it is the best for sure. Hands down. However, I don't use it that much anymore. I just use the terminal and VS code. And what I like about that is like, I usually have a couple VS codes open that just kind of like live in certain folders that are associated with certain repositories that are just there all the time. And so I like to just kind of like, you know, have my shell there that's kind of associated with that project. And so whenever I do like say some Git stuff, like it's always in the same terminal as the VS code folder that I have opened and I have the plugin that like colors it. So I've like got the green code for this project and the blue code for this project and the red code for this project. And they all have their respective terminals. And so it's just nice to keep them together. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, that, that reminds me though. One thing I do hate about Commander is if you do PowerShell in it, the colors are always whack. It drives me crazy. Well, I mean, do you not change your theme for it? 
Uh, I think I have. It still never looks quite like PowerShell does, which always bugs me. Well, I was going to say that, like, to, to Joe's point, like, I absolutely do that same thing. Like, I use the terminals that are in VS Code. It's like, the, you know, here's the purpose-built terminal, you know, for the, for this particular project or whatever. Um, but I don't, like, if I, like, in my kubectl example, like, kubectl logs example, like, I wouldn't want to try to follow the logs inside of a, a um Visual Studio Code terminal window only because usually like I leave it it's like default small size, you know. So it's good and like I like it. it so it, I'll, I think it's good enough in that size to be able to like, hey, I want to get commit some code and you know move on. But like if I need to see a bunch of um, things at one time, then I then that's when I want to have a dedicated uh, you know terminal for that. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so on to my last one. And this one is, this is fairly new in my tool set. And I, I bring it up here for a couple of reasons. I'll get into it. So I, I built my own homegrown NAS, right? I, I know we've talked about it in the past. Um, but when I did this, I went down the research hole of days. I think I came out unshaven. Oh, and he wouldn't do that. Right? Disoriented, confused, frustrated. At the end of all of it, I found the OS for this NAS called Unraid. And honestly, it is done so well. So there's tons of different ones out there. There's um, Open Media Vault. There's Free NAS. There's, there's some other ones. Long story short, this is one of the only ones that you pay for. And the primary reason I went with this one is because things like Free NAS the performance is super high, but you basically have to pair hard drives. If you want to increase the space on your NAS, you got to buy two of the same drive. That gets really expensive when you're trying to grow your, your network storage, right? Um, Open Media Vault, super popular if you want to jack with Linux all the time, right? Like there's some things I don't mind playing with, but when we're talking about backups for my family photos and things, I just want something that works. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So, and I know Outlaw is a fan of Drobos. And and one of the reasons you would buy something like a Drobo or an off-the-shelf NAS, off-the-shelf NAS is so you just don't have to worry about the OS or anything, right? Like, you just want to be able to save files on it and never have to think about it again. So, this is where the Unraid thing comes in for me. So first off, they allow you to do all kinds of crazy things. But in short, you have a parity drive or two if you want to do two, but you have a parity drive and then every other drive that you add to the system, as long as it's the same size or smaller than that parity drive, you can basically add up to, I think, 32 or maybe 29 hard drives in there. So I went with 14 terabyte drives. So right now I have three 14 terabyte drives in there which basically gives me one parity drive that's 14 terabytes. Can't count that as storage space, right? But then my other two, the usable space off of it is basically 26 terabytes. So in three drives, I have 26 terabytes that are basically recoverable, backed up type thing, right? Like if one of the drives fails, whether it's a parity drive or a data drive, it can rebuild that data for me. Big deal, right? So that's all cool. 
And that was the basic reason why I went with it. And again, it's paid for. It's not crazy expensive. I think you can, you can get up to six drives. I want to say for like 60 bucks. Like it's not that, not that expensive. You do 12 drives for like 90. And I did the unlimited drives because I'm going to chain 50 of them off there at some point, but it was like 130 bucks. All right. So basically the same cost as, as a Windows license. Now, why am I talking about this on a developer thing? So there's two reasons. One, I already mentioned that Google is going to start taking away their their storage tier where you had unlimited photos and all that kind of stuff, right? I think I mentioned that in one of the previous episodes in June or July of this coming year of 2021, or, or that I think that's the year that we're in now when this released. So 2021, in about six months, your photo storage is no longer free, right? It goes against your quota. So I needed something to where I could back these things up locally. And, and maybe even instead of ever going up to the cloud, it goes to my personal NAS, right? So that's a big one. But then here's the developer side of me. That is so cool. So we love Docker. We love apps. We love being able to tinker with stuff. This is where Unraid pushed me over the top. So they have this thing called apps built in. And guys, all it is is you can install apps that are sort of handpicked by the community for Unraid that is just Docker containers running. Oh, so, so basically anything that you kind of want to run, you can run any Docker container out there that exists that runs on Linux. You can run on this thing because they have full on Docker support. If you do one of the community-supported ones, um, and when I say community-supported, they sort of have a plug-in that allows you to just browse the Docker apps, you can basically say, hey, I want to run one of these, and here's one of them that I like, Minio or Min.io. If you've ever heard of it, it's really cool. So a lot of you are probably familiar with AWS S3 or Azure Blob Storage or anything like that. What many men I O or men, I don't even know how you say it. Um, but what this thing does is it allows you to do blob storage on your own NAS. So if you wanted a place to where you could just upload files into your own buckets, because it's the same type thinking as both S3, Azure blob storage, Google cloud storage, all that kind of stuff. You create a bucket and you just drop data in there. It's just blobs, right? And so what's cool about this is you could do it for putting things in there that you want, but you could also do it for programming type things because Min.io is actually one of the biggest on-prem type blob storage applications out there in the wild. So this is a plugin. You literally go click um, on the app, say install. It asks you a few questions like where you want to map it to, which one of your NAS shares you want to map it to. And boom, you now have this bucket storage that you could do. Super cool as a developer, that as somebody that wants to develop something for like cloud storage type applications. Another one, maybe, maybe you don't like putting your stuff out on GitHub or GitLab or any public repos, right? Maybe you want to keep it local because you are just paranoid. Like I guess the three, at least two of us tend to be. Um, maybe you want to have that stuff down local. They have multiple Git images that are already prepared for the Unraid community. One is GitLab, another one's called GitT. And basically, you can run these containers and you can basically host your own Git. So 
That's pretty cool. So you can write your code, commit locally to your NAS, and life is great, right? Like it's not up in the cloud unless you want it to be. Um, there are other ones like Plex. I mean, a lot of people that get a NAS, a lot of times they'll put their movies on there and do Plex. There's another one called NextCloud. Um, but there is also one other one that I really like, uh, and I have to go find it. I think it was called Cloudberry or something like that, Cloudberry Backup. So what's cool is, let's say that you have things on your NAS that you do want to back up to the cloud, just to be triple sure, right? You've already got the parity. You've already got your other drive, so you're kind of safe there. But let's say that you do want to push it up to S3 or something like that. You can have this thing set up to look at a particular folder or a particular share you want and back it up to S3 or Azure cloud storage or wherever. So um, all of these features are super awesome. And again, this unraid setup for the NAS, as well as all the plugins that there. So as a matter of fact, uh, Prometheus is there. Grafana is there. They have all kinds of cool stuff. So, Looks from great. a developer, I love it, but also just from a place to be able to store my things efficiently, cost efficiently, and to not have to worry about it, sold. Yeah, I just I like uh, how nice it looks. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous, but like I kind of like thinking about like running your own NAS. I'm used to like I'm like oh god, I'm going to be having to sign up for IRC, and uh, I'm going to be <laughs> yeah. <laughs> connecting to BBSs to figure out. I'm like no, this actually looks really nice, professional, and just good. It's easy. And that, that was kind of the thing, right? Like, I mean, it, you've done it too. Like you go to set up a web server. Like if you're ever doing it for the first time in Linux, there's a lot of stuff to know, a lot of ways to do things wrong. Right. So I wanted something that I didn't have to go piece together. Like you said, going to 20 forums and said, uh, how do, how do I do this? Right. Like, yeah, I, I want the easy button for things that, that I don't want to have to worry about. Right. This isn't a toy. I don't want to mess up storing 10 years of family photos. Right. And then them disappear. Oh, yeah, for sure. But then the app support is just killer, man. Yeah. And you can go take a look at the apps right now. You don't have to sign up for anything. There's 942 of them. Isn't it crazy? Crazy. Yeah. And some some really, really good ones. So. Yeah, that's my other one. Like I said, it it wasn't the most developer centric one, but I think. A lot of times just having the backup and all that kind of stuff, it's nice to know there's options out there instead of going and spending, you know, $600 on a Drobo and then still having to buy the drives to put in it. Yeah. Hey, why is it so expensive? Dude, it, it shouldn't be. Now, I will say, I will say, it, it. I went a little bit crazy with it. So I have SAS drives and SATA drives and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. So I have server hardware there. And it, so it, it was fun. It was a little bit of a challenge, but it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. I think I'm going to do a video on it, um, but that's that's going to take me a little bit of time because I have probably hours worth of videos I was putting that thing together. Yeah, times is a tough part. Yeah, like, I don't mind paying a little bit of a premium like uh, with like Mac stuff, like uh, Apple stuff. I'm, I, I'm not one to complain because – Maybe it's maybe 10% too much, you know, but the stuff you get is really great. The Drobo stuff, like, Al, I know you're a fan of Drobo. Like, it always seems to me, to me like Drobo is like twice as expensive as it should be. So I always had a hard time with it because like, it looks really nice. I don't mind paying extra for nice. I don't want to pay like two or three times the price extra. I think so. my biggest thing was you pay the premium and then you're still stuck with the number of drives that that thing will take. Yeah. Whereas, 
This thing, like literally, if you want to chain a bunch of breakout boxes together, you can put 28 drives. Like you could seriously have an entire storage facility wherever you wanted. You're not, you're not just limited to whatever's in that one box. So, uh, I would say, okay. So, so my point, my thing is like, if I were going to build a NAS today, then yeah, I, I, I like this option. The thing, you know, I mean, we're saying like, Oh, I was a fan of the Drobos. At the time when I when I got the first one, the thing that I liked about it was that uh, if you wanted a easy solution to be able to put any size drives together, just to just mix any size set of drives, then it was pretty much the only game in town at the time. And that was the thing is like I didn't want to have to care, uh, you know, if I have like you know, uh, hey, here's a, a a one terabyte drive, here's a two terabyte drive. You know, here's a, a 500. Like, I just wanted to like mix them all up together and yep. give me whatever size I can get and good enough. And that's what I wanted. And plus, you know, that would mean in the future when I want to upgrade, then all I got to do is just like plop out the smallest drive and put in a larger one and boom, I can just keep building that, that up as I go. And that's the thing that, you know, they, Drobo refers to it as beyond raid. That was the thing that I liked about it. And so at the time, like I was willing to pay a little bit of extra to have that not caring. Because what what Alan started off with about the pairing the drives, like that's assuming that you're going to like do mirrored pairs. If you're going to do a traditional uh, RAID 5 or RAID 6 type array, then, you know, traditionally all of those drives needed to match. So in Alan's example, he's using three, which it sounds like you're doing a RAID 5. Uh, with, no, there's you know, no RAID. It's the equivalent of a RAID 5. It's uh, it, RAID. You know, with what you've got. Because you said, if I recall, you said you had three 14 terabyte drives. One of them is the parity drives and the other two are the data, which is the equivalent of a RAID 5 setup, right? But they don't have to be the same size drive. They don't I have to be. I could have done a one right? a terabyte, a four terabyte, and a 14 if I wanted. Yeah, and it ends up being like whatever the smaller drive is, is like that's going to kind of dictate, uh, you know, some of that size, you know. Uh, Your biggest has to be the parity in terms of unraid. Yeah. But but the point is, is like if you were to go with the old, the old school setups, though, then all of those drives had to match. And that's where it would be a hassle because if you wanted to, you know, back when I was looking at that, if if I wanted to buy like five drives, they were all the same. Like that could be costly, right? And, you know, I mean, even right now I'm going through a process of upgrading my drives because, um, you know, took advantage of some of the cells that were available over the holidays, right? And, you know, I'm not upgrading all of the drives. I'm just upgrading some of them, you know? Right. And, and uh, that's the thing that, like, if you were going to have whatever your solution is for, you know, a home now is like, I think that it's important that it allows for you to just add in any size drive, you know, at your, you know, any number of any size, whenever you're, you can, you know, so that you can just like slowly grow it over time instead of it being like a big cumbersome thing. Like, Oh, I got to buy like, you know, 10 new drives, all the same size, and they should probably, you know, be the same manufacturer or whatever, like, you know, whatever. I don't want to have to deal with all that kind of crap. 
Yeah. It it was definitely one of those decisions where, like I said, it was a research hole, but a lot of the options required beefy hardware. And I was like, man, I don't really want to be running an i7 with 64 gigs of RAM just to store some files. Like that's ridiculous, right? Um, which the ZFS file system usually is a little bit hungrier and you got to do like, there's so many things that you have to learn about if you ever decide to embark on this, but that's again, that's why I kind of landed this route and the developer friendly fun stuff that you could do on top of it was like, Oh, that's just icing on the cake. Right. So, yeah, I would say too, though, that like, you know, I've kind of gotten to the point now where like, um, I, I, there's some things where I'm like, you know what? If there's like a cheap, easy, or uh, you know, way to just like use some kind of cloud service for it too, then oh, like yeah. just offload that stuff, man. Like I'm not, e- I'm not trying to like back up my whole digital life in my house because I mean I don't even want to. Like, uh, you you, know, you mentioned photos, Google Photos as being like one of the reasons to to do this, but you know, my immediate thought was like you know that Amazon has a service where you could pay a flat fee and then just get unlimited photo storage there. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that way all my photos aren't in my house. So God forbid if there was a fire here, right? Like I don't, I still don't want to lose those. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's one of the things I've thought about it. Man, I'm, I'm so torn on all that stuff. It's almost like with the Amazon stuff, I know that they do a lot of machine learning against all that. And I, I just don't, love the idea of somebody like Amazon having, I don't love the idea of Google having all my photos either. Truth be told. Um, but yeah, I, I think what my ultimate goal will be with these is I'll probably have these down and then I'll probably find some way to compress and upload to something like glacier storage in, in Amazon. Right. So that it's dirt cheap. It's a disaster recovery type thing if I ever actually need it. Right. So yeah, I mean, even I've been going through over the holidays, uh, <laughs> just backing up our stuff, uh, to OneDrive. Yeah, I've right. been going through a whole, whole backup of, uh, you know, using OneDrive for that just because it's easy. So like some of those cloud services are, um, you know, use them. I, I would say like no one service for everything. Like you could find a mixture of stuff. So like, you know, that, uh, the Amazon photo one I think is good enough since it's like unlimited photo storage and, you know, a mixture of like the things that you want easy access to, then I'll like OneDrive for that. Um, and you know, I can get it like cross platform, you know, as I need it. So, yeah. One that's worth mentioning though, if anybody is looking to back up things to the cloud, I know we talked about S3 and Azure and OneDrive and all that kind of stuff. OneDrive, you get free if you have a subscription to office and all that. Uh, Backblaze. I want to say Backblaze's storage is like half the price of S3, something like that. So if you need if you need a place to actually put things and and have a good cost effective solution for backing up files, Backblaze is a really good place. And they're the ones that do all the tests on hard drives over time and tell you about the failure rates of the Western Digital's, the Seagate's, all that kind of stuff. Well, now so, Google has a lot of that uh, same data too that they that they release right. related to it, but. Yeah, I mean, um I think I would think I would say that uh consider your use case. Right. You know, like if if you're just going to if it's something you're going to throw up to the cloud and you're never going to like, you know, it'll be a a rare 
day before you ever touch it again, then sure, maybe a glacier is good enough. But, you know, if you look at some of the glacier, uh, uh, retrieval costs. Well, no, no, no. The retrieval timeframes, like oh, it no, can actually yeah. be days before you, right. you know, get it starts. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. So, so you have to consider, and that's why, like, I considered backing up some of our stuff to Glacier because I'm like, eh, what's the chance I'm going to need this thing? But then I was like, well, I'm already paying for one drive and, uh, it's a lot easier. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if I want it, it's not, I don't like, cause if I want it, I'm going to want it then. I'm not going to want it like three days from now. I want it now. Put in a request. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the problem with glaciers. It was just going to be like, oh, forget it. Right. Yeah. You know. Cool. All right. So, uh, with that, we have already headed into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week that we already started. So <laughs> it's Joe's right. turn. Yep. All right. And my tip of the week. Uh, so, uh, like episode a long time ago, we talked about, uh, basically kind of deliver practice and, uh, kind of how to build up developer skills and the difference between knowledge and skills. So I just want to kind of bring that up again. And, uh, one thing that I noticed recently is like, uh, I, uh, kind of had a knowledge gap when it came to Python, like where I had, um, some skills, like I knew how to program. And I was learning Python and I was getting really frustrated because there are things I didn't know how to do in Python and I wasn't doing things in a Pythonic way. I was just like treating it like another language. I was doing my for loops and while loops and just kind of doing some dumb things. And it's because I had kind of an imbalance where I was like, I was able to accomplish things easily without knowing very much. And it's just a bad position to be in because like it was falling back to, to bad patterns because I, I hadn't taken a more formal approach to learning. And so it just kind of reminded me that, um, you got to kind of balance and you hear, you hear a lot about uh, the other direction where like people are new to programming. And so they go off and they spend like two years doing courses and watching YouTube videos, but never do a single side project. And then they get a job or get into an interview and they realize they don't really know how to start something new. And so uh, I just want to kind of mention that, um, you know, that it's important to kind of balance those things. And so, uh, it's kind of good to bring that up every once in a while. And micro G, uh, just happened to mention to me, these two really good, good uh, websites for uh, challenging projects that every programmer should try. And then there's a, the second one is more challenging projects. And uh, it really is challenging. These are not <laughs> the missions to be taken lightly. For example, uh, the first challenging uh, project for programmers to try is writing a text editor, which uh, you know, seems pretty daunting to me, but like when you think about it, if you've been programming for a little while, you know everything you need to do in order to make that happen, but it's going to take some work to actually go through and do that. Uh, second one, Space Invaders. Sounds pretty fun. You have to deal with uh, graphics there. Uh, the third one is writing a compiler. So like these are not, you know, these are the kinds of things we're probably taking, you know, weeks, maybe months to, to really get through, even if you're an experienced programmer. Uh, and it just goes on from there, but, uh, it's also, it's something that's kind of cool. So maybe if you scroll through these posts, uh, you'll see something that kind of strikes your fancy that maybe you want to do. But, um, I do think that, uh, you know, a lot of times I've heard people say like, oh, well, I want to start a project, but I don't know what to start for. Like you could just Google like programmer ideas, start it like side projects and you'll find tons of stuff like this. And these are particularly interesting, uh, and hard. And maybe you want that, but if not, if you just give it a Google, you can find something else that might be more your speed. So give it a, give it a go. Hmm. 
All right. So I guess it's my turn. Yeah, I was I was looking at the page. Sorry about that. Pause there. So following up with the unraid thing. So one of the interesting things here is you might want your NAS to be completely hidden, right? Like if it was just a regular NAS, you probably don't want it exposed to the outside world unless you have a need for something like a self-hosted Dropbox per se, right? You know, maybe maybe you want somebody to be able to upload files to your system because, you know, that's where you're going to do things. Well, most of us are probably with ISPs that give you dynamic IP addresses, right? So, you know, once a week, once a month, your IP address changes because the ISP can change it whenever they want. You know, they can do it whenever your router reboots. They can do it whenever they do something that switch. doesn't matter, right? So one of the problems with this is if you if you ever have a domain like like codingblocks.net, right? Behind the scenes, you have to set it up to point to a specific IP address. Um, and that's usually with whatever the hosting provider is. And most of these domain registrars won't let you point to a, a dynamic IP address. There are ways around it using a service like NoIP or something like that, but it's a little bit more involved. That said, what if you don't want to set up a domain name, but you still want to be able to do something like host your own Dropbox or host your own um, Nextcloud or something like that, right? You can. There were some people kind of like us three that were just curious about what it would be like to set up this dynamic IP type service. And they created a service called DuckDNS. So if you go to DuckDNS.org, basically what you can do is you can sign up for your own subdomain and whatever it'll be, it'll be something at or something dot duck org, right? So we could say, Hey, coding block server dot duck org, And you basically put something on your internal system that will constantly contact duck DNS to let them know what your current IP address is from your internet. Right. And so codingblockserver.duckdns.org would always have the latest IP address. So if anybody ever tried to hit it, you could route it to your home NAS to whatever system you wanted to do. So if you want a free way to have your dynamic IP address linked to a domain name that you can use, this is a way to do it. And these guys created it. It's free. It was literally just something that they were like, huh, I wonder how we do this. And they said, you know what? I think other people would like it. And now it is super duper popular. And they've got security built into it. Um, they use tokens. It, it looks sort of like OAuthy. So, yeah, definitely check that out if it's something that interests you. So this is like um, there used to be something like this on the – I remember like the Netgear routers used to have this they built still into have it. it. They still have it. So that's what I use. I use the Netgear stuff, which it used to be mynetgear.com, right? So if you bought an Orbi or a Nighthawk or something like that, you could get dynamic DNS. It's actually built into the router firmware. And you could, you know, put, like I said, you could do coding block server dot mynetgear.com, right? Well, what's interesting is apparently they either handed it over or it got bought by no IP. Mm-hmm. So noip.org is actually the service that provides it now, but it's the same type situation, right? But that assumed that you bought a Netgear router that you were using their firmware. There's no such requirement here. This is a totally free service that you can use with any piece of hardware out there and and use it to route to your home if you wanted to. Can, can we for a moment just talk about like what a bad idea it would be to put your NAS on a uh, 
publicly available internet. Yeah. Uh, so you don't want. Can we go ahead and advocate against that? So here's what's really cool, and this is this is one of the things that's nice. So with the Unraid setup, you can actually they have software, uh, you know, a Docker container set up. It's called Swag, that is basically a reverse proxy, so that if you want to point a domain, like so, let's say for instance, if you had like a Dropbox clone, you could say Dropbox dot um, DuckDNS.org, assuming that wasn't taken, but of course it is. You could have that route to your um, Dropbox container, your Dropbox-like container on your NAS, right? If you said that you had something like Min.io, the one that I was telling you about with the blob storage, you could have min.io.duckdns.org, and that, when it hits, would route to that container. So it's never actually hitting your main NAS. Now, again, there's always a security concern of anything hitting anything on a box that has your other stuff, but you can route these things to those containers and that's where they go. But They're not actually hitting the main. That container's still on your network though. The containers on your network. It, it's just like anything that you're doing here would be like running a server on any computer in your network, right? That's so that's the risk of doing that kind of thing. But it is cool if you do want to if you have the need to serve something from your home, and, and it doesn't have to be on RAID, right? Like I, I mentioned this Duck DNS thing just to tie into that with the containers, but if you just wanted to set up a simple website to test out on an old laptop you had laying around, you could Duck DNS it, point it into your network, and route it to that laptop, and it'll serve up the web pages, right? up to you to make sure you've secured that stuff. <laughs> so just know anytime you let incoming traffic into your network, there's, there's things that you should be so, um, making sure you do. So we're going to say that this is, this is a tip of the week of something you can do. Uh, you should totally with not a strong just advocate that you probably shouldn't do this. <laughs> Unless you know what you're doing and you're willing to take whatever the risks are. Yes, totally. But this is a way to have your IP address always or, or, or a domain that will always point into your network if you want it to. I could totally jump out of a perfectly good <laughs> moving airplane too. I've done it. But I better I know what it. I'm doing. <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> Uh, I thought I, you know, based off of just the, cause I saw you had the duck DNS in here. I, I assumed that this was going to be like some kind of privacy DNS thing. Um, cause you've heard about quad nine, maybe. No, no. Is this like the quad eights from Google? Okay. So, so, so 8.8.8.8 was something that Google set up like, you know, more than a decade ago and 8.8.4.4 was the, uh, the, the the secondary version of that, right? And it was Google's like free DNS thing. But um, it was just meant to be like a faster, you know, distributed DNS. And then that way you could like bypass your ISP so that your ISP doesn't know what you're doing. Because there is some, uh, you know, just based on the metadata around DNS queries, right? Like your, your ISP can kind of like learn things about you, right? They know what you're doing, at which now by going yeah. through Google, they know what you're doing also. Well, now, right? and, and so that was, that was the, the caveat to that. But also too, like, uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like restricting anything. So IBM, who own, IBM owns the nine dot, um, network. So, uh, they set up, 
a DNS server called that's called Quad Nine Nine Dot Nine Dot Nine Dot Nine, and they're they're uh, bl- purposely blocking malware infected websites. So they're keeping a list of like things that are known to be bad. And if hmm. you try to do a DNS query to any of that, it's just not going to work. I, I I don't know what it, I haven't tried to do a query to see like what it would come back with, but um, and then more recently, uh, Cloudflare set up one to help, uh, you know, cause Cloudflare, if you, you know, anybody who's paid attention in the web space, I'm sure has heard about Cloudflare and all of their, the great things that they're doing to try like speed things up and whatnot. You know, they're like a big CDN or, or one of the things that they offer or maybe first got known for was their CDN caching offering. But, uh, you know, they have the 1.1.1.1, but, um, I was looking into that and if I'm understanding that right, they actually have like there's other versions of one dot of their DNS ser- setting where like, or service where, uh, you know, if you want parental controls to be added in, then you could do like, um, malware plus parental controls or like adult content blocking. Uh, you could go to like one dot one dot one dot three for the DNS. That was pretty cool. I'd never heard of this one. Yeah. Uh, but they have, but Cloudflare also has one that includes the malware only as well. That's 1.1.1.2. So there's a lot of numbers to keep track of, but I thought that's where you were going with, with it when I saw just the name duck DNS. Uh, so yeah, we for, didn't even talk about solar winds. Oh, yeah. we shouldn't go there now, but yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Uh, so for my tip of the week, uh, this one was given to us from, uh, Morali, which if you've been on, uh, the Slack, then I'm sure you've, you've seen him, uh, in there and, and he's been mentioned on the show multiple times with, uh, he's, he's the one who told me about solar winds initially. <laughs> oh, with the, the, re- he told you about the recent hack. Like you didn't hear. Yeah. It I hadn't elsewhere? heard about it until he's like, Hey, I'm sure you guys are going to talk about, uh, oh, yeah. uh, solar winds. I had to Google it. how did you not hear about it? Okay. We'll get to that another time. Um, <laughs> uh, at any rate, so MIT has this uh, offering called the missing semester of CS education. And it's basically like um, stuff that isn't going to be taught as part of a computer science uh, curriculum. So there's things like the shell and shell tools and scripting and data wrangling and editors and command line environment and using Git and debugging and then security and cryptography. So there's a lot of great topics on here and uh, you can see like previous years, uh, you know, versions of the class, but, um, uh, I'll include several links to it for both the, uh, th- there's a, a list of without 11, 11 lectures in, uh, on YouTube that you could watch. And, you know, I mean, they're all like lecture length, uh, you know, less than an hour, like, well, one of them's an hour and a half, but, um, it's on Git, So, I mean, it, it should be, um, no, but yeah, so I thought that was a pretty cool offering. So, you know, fill in the blanks for that that computer science education. Very nice. With the things that they're yep. not going to teach you in school. Which I feel like that's a lot. That's been like a, uh, you know, running theme with a lot of things that we've talked about over the years. You know? Yep. So, all right. Well, uh, with that, uh, we hope you enjoyed this. Stay tuned for more information don't forget about the coding blocks game. Jam, 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 you wary. Uh, <laughs> yep, coming so, right up. 
Subscribe to us on uh, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, wherever you like to find your podcasts. And uh, hey, leave us a review if you haven't already. We would greatly appreciate it. Um, you can find a helpful link at <laughs> codingblocks.net slash review. And uh, hey, if there's some other place that you like to leave your podcast reviews, let us know and uh, we can add it there so that there's more than just the one useful link there. True that. And while you're up there, make sure you check out our amazing show notes, our examples, our discussions, and more. And make sure you send your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack channel at codyblocks.net slash Slack if you're not a member. And uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks. We have yet to receive any warnings from Twitter about uh, you know misinformation, so I guess we're doing okay. Uh, still don't have that checkbox, though. Uh, still unverified. Uh, um, no information is good information, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess. So maybe we're just not on Twitter's uh, radar. But with your help, if you go follow us, maybe we'll uh, get those numbers up there and, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, overtake Taylor Swift or whoever is number one right now. <laughs> and you can do that at uh, codingboss.net. We have a bunch of social links at the top of the page. 